Welcome to the Network State Podcast. Today, I'm here with my friend, Benny Bonsall, co-founder and former CEO of Flipkart. Now, Flipkart is Amazon of India, and it's India's largest exit. In 2018, Walmart bought a 77% stake in Flipkart for $16 billion. For context, Benny and his co-founders bootstrapped the company in 2007 with just a few thousand dollars. Getting from that to $16 billion was a huge result, and that exit was obviously big for anywhere, but it was massive for India. It put the Indian tech ecosystem on the map, and it proved that global investors and local talent could build massive companies in India. Indeed, Binny's story and that of Flipkart's is the story of the rise of India on the global stage. Well, welcome to the Network State Podcast. Binny, glad to have you here. Oh, super excited. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So um, we just kind of gave the audience an overview of the rise and really the return of India, the return of Indian tech. And... You personify that, you exemplify that. India's largest exit ever, proving that both local entrepreneurs and foreign investors could collaborate to build a technology company of global significance with both Amazon and Walmart bidding over it. Um, you were founder, you, for a time you were CEO, uh, now you're doing your next thing. Um, we wanna hear about the rise of Flipkart, the, the founding of it, how you, you got it to, to what it is, which is a very difficult environment in <laughs> India at that time. Yeah. And, and then what you're doing next. So why don't we start there? Tell, tell us about right. you know, the origins. Like where was India when, when you got started? Like yeah. it was the early oh, 2000s, wanna, yeah. Yeah, you wanna start there or maybe a little bit, maybe even earlier? Earlier, uh, go, go, go. Yeah. Start, where, start where you think we should start. Yeah. Go. I think, yeah, I think what is probably relevant is, I was thinking about this, like where to start. And uh, I remember now a vivid, remember a vivid sort of memory uh, today morning where I'm in like fourth grade uh, and Fourth grade is when I saw my first computer, mm. and that was in my school. So uh, my school had these uh, computers on which uh, very very early uh, you could sort of uh, do stuff in logo, mm -hmm. and uh, and you could I and mean, there were sort of there was a computer course and which everyone had to take. This is like ninety one ish. This would be yeah, mm. this, this would be ninety one, ninety two ish. Yeah, very early. And I was an average student in class uh, in all subjects. But when I saw the, com uh, the computer, I knew that uh, that is something I'm going to be good at. Like, mm. I just uh, felt like yeah, this is something uh, I love, I'm passionate about. And uh, I remember when sort of the, whole, the year ended, uh, I had scored like the most in class, like by far, like mm. there was no, nobody even close and I was an average student. So everybody, all the teachers were quite surprised, like mm. what happened. And somehow that gave me actually confidence to do better uh, in uh, other subjects as well, especially maths and science. Mm. Uh, so I got, got more confident, I sort of uh, became uh, better and better and uh, sort of top of class in math, science. And that's how... I got confident enough to uh, sit for the IITJ exam. For there is an exam for getting into. Explain what that is for fo folks who don't know the IIT Joint yeah. Entrance Exam. So in I think one of the great uh, infrastructure pieces, uh, I think India really invested uh, very early on since getting independence was these Institute uh, of uh, Engineering and Technology called IITs. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were, and when I got into one, there were, I think, seven or eight, and now there are 20 hmm. uh, of them. And these are like in elite engineering schools with really world-class faculty, uh, world-class sort of facilities. And obviously the best Indian students sort of compete every year 
I think more than uh, when I when I gave the exam, I think it was more than two three hundred thousand students giving the exam, mm. uh, and uh, only like I think three or four thousand students get in. So it's pretty hard. It's yeah, pretty it's, hard. It's it's actually it's a we'll probably put up some like images of IATJE questions, but it's math, it's physics, it's actually fairly difficult integrals yeah. that they'll <laughs> typically ask yeah. each year, right? And uh, and it's also. Um, you know, for 50 years being corruption free, yeah. like I say, it's been oh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a very high integrity exam with the questions kept. And uh, many of the technologists in the U.S., like I think Vinod Kozla, I think, believe he was an yes, IIT grad, IIT right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and a number of them are IIT or Sundar IIM. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sundar, exactly. And and he, I think he was like a civil engineering grad, but it's really just like a test of technical ability, right? Right. Correct. And so that means that actually some of the most ambitious and intelligent people in India become engineers. They yeah. have a technical training very early yeah, yeah, yeah. on, right? Yeah. And I mean, I came from a sort of middle class family, lower middle class, both. Where'd, my, you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in a city called Ch Chandigarh. It's near Delhi. Yep. And it's uh, also a unique city in a way. It's on the sort of only planned city in India. Right. Uh, very new city. Uh, it was established in 1960. Uh, so after India's independence and a French uh, architect, Lee Carbuzier, designed it and uh, he's gotten a lot of uh, flack in the west because he makes these big you know boulevards and stuff like that that uh -huh. he doesn't have shade and stuff oh, really? like yeah yeah <laughs> but like uh, was it okay growing up oh or, yeah, yeah. I, i'm very i would be very grateful uh, to okay. him i love the city i still oh, love really? it interesting okay yeah uh, i go back almost every year interesting uh, my parents are still there hmm. uh, my parents still live in uh, in chandigarh so and i have a lot of family there so uh, a lot of connection there so yeah so so i, I was saying so I uh, come from a middle-class family. Both my parents were working in government jobs. My uh, father was a manager in a national bank. Mm. And uh, my mom also sort of had a job in a uh, uh, government uh, office. Uh, but, I mean, I could sort of dream uh, uh, while growing up, like in the 80s and 90s, uh, I could dream of going to like the best institute in the country right. from there and then, I mean, working for uh, the best I, organizations uh, across the world. Which, which IIT did you go to? I went to ID Delhi. Delhi, okay, yeah. great. So near home? Yes, yes. near home, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it had a good uh, computer science uh, department, so yeah. And so that was, so that you, uh, that was like with the early 2000s or whatever. That so that was graduated. 2001, yes, sir. So yeah. I, uh, I uh, started. Uh, I went to IDL in 2000, uh, 2001, and then I graduated uh, in 2005. And then, uh, so after that, you joined Amazon, or it, we went straight out of college to Amazon, is that right? Yeah, so I, I didn't join Amazon right out of uh, college, so I joined this uh, small sort of company uh, 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 called Sarnoff uh, Technologies, mm. and they used to be uh, famous. So that's like atypical product. because lots of IT grads want to join like a you know elite international right. brand. Yeah, so that's yeah, actually yeah. that was that that always was atypical then. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, I was uh, in college again. I was most of my uh, batchmates uh, were either going for a master's or PhD to the right. US. Right. Uh, and and few of them were going to go to these management institutes which India has called IIMs. IIMs yep. Uh, so I was one of the fewer ones who said, okay, I, I, I think I liked the IIT experience, but I was, was sort of done with education. <laughs> right. I, I didn't find that spending two, three years more in an education institute was going to be uh, good for me. So 
was the right thing for me. So I thought I'll sort of, uh, and I didn't want to go outside India. I somehow felt mm. that India is the uh, right place to be. There is probably, op- I mean, uh, energy and opportunity here. So that was a non-consensus. I mean, like one thing that we, you know, have talked about is like, so I, I'm born around the same time as you and, you know, we kind of like seeing some of the same phenomenon, but from, you know, 10,000 miles away. Yeah. I saw the rise of the internet, the digital infrastructure, but I also saw the decay of physical infrastructure in cities like San Francisco, where it's just far worse than it was 20 years mm-hmm. ago. And, and that's true in Seattle, that's true in LA, that's true in a lot of other places in the US. You saw the rise of the internet in India, but you also saw the rise of the physical infrastructure. Yeah. It's improved dramatically over the last, you know, especially 10 years, but certainly since, you know, the 80s or the 90s. Yeah. And so was that what, why did you make the relatively non-consensus decision in the mid-2000s to stay in India, where a lot of your classmates were emigrating and building things abroad? It wasn't yet known. You were one of the first to build a giant tech company yeah, within yeah. India, right? So why, why, what made you do that? Was it seeing the rise? Was it just, just a feeling? I think it was just a feeling. I, I wouldn't say, I mean, I mean, at that time, there was no plan to start a company mm. or, or anything. I mean, uh, it was one of the things I might, uh, on the back of my mind, but it wasn't like the thing yes. I wanted to do. I just wanted to uh, start working. I mean, just get my hands dirty. I mean, uh, and uh, apply what I'd learned. Uh, see how sort of uh, working in a tech company feels like, or working sort of with technology feels like, uh, and go from go from there. And and to do it from uh, from India because again, there, as I said, I think I could just see. I I, ha- uh, I was sort of seeing, uh, as you say, both the digital and the physical infrastructure sort of growing pretty rapidly uh, in, mm. in India in the 2000s. And, uh, but even in 2008, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there was still only about 5% of India had internet connections, right? right? Yeah. Today with Reliance Geo and the rise of it, it's like I think past 50% or so on, and we're going to get to a billion yeah. or something, right? Um, but, but you could see that this thing, which had become so big everywhere else, was, was rising there. Like, you know, I th- from Sarnoff, then you joined AWS. What did Sarnoff do? Yeah. So yeah. So uh, so Sarnoff was also sort of a big non-consensus move mm. because Sarnoff was a small sort of t- uh, company uh, out of Princeton. They were very famously known as RCA Labs. Okay. Uh, and I think they did a lot of pioneering work before mach- machine learning became what it became. I think they were sort of the early pioneers uh, mm. of uh, computer vision and machine learning. Interesting, okay. And all of that. And uh, they'd come for a talk in our, and there were a couple of, uh, uh, a couple of seniors from uh, uh, from our department who worked there. Mm. And they'd come and given a talk that this is what we do. And, uh, and they were working on uh, automotive vision, figuring out whether a car is driving in the lane, and uh, is the driver sleeping, and all, all that sort of stuff back mm. in like 2005. I see. Uh, so it was like around the time that self-driving was, I think the DARPA Grand Challenge just happened around that was time. Was just, yeah. Yeah, was just, yeah, getting popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was at the time. So so I got quite uh, excited about that. I was uh, very interested in uh, computer vision and uh, graphics and all that sort of thing. So, so I uh, basically got a job on campus hmm. in uh, DE Shaw. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, but I... Uh, didn't really want to go there. So you're like intern there or something like that. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I got a job on campus. I mean, last oh. in the last year, you sort of sit for placements. Uh, got it. So they, they have they have there's sort like of a working pla- internship. Yeah, there's a placement process okay, it, and and you, and and uh, you uh, go and interview with companies and you are allowed to take one job. Mm. Uh, 
so so the that job i got with isha uh, but i mean it was a hedge fund uh, it was a sort of i mean uh, something uh, i didn't want to do uh, so i applied to these uh, uh, senior from it delhi uh, i wrote to them that i would really want to work on uh, these problems and uh, and went through their interview process and and got a job uh, with sarnoff and they had an office in bangalore uh where i went and joined and and so you know the thing is that you know something i remarked to many uh indian immigrants and you know f- right is that uh for many folks just the level up from especially lower middle class to upper middle class with a google job or facebook job yeah. in india it's like an ipo for them oh yeah right? absolutely they they're they're a very suitable boy <laughs> they can <laughs> they can you know they're varin and so on you yeah, know they can yeah, they can yeah. have you know a good marriage all the type of stuff so it's like a huge level up for them so the extra risk of actually going and starting a company is for many folks at least until recently not worth the reward yeah. right because you can take the relatively safe bet and that's like such a big level up yeah. over what it was that that people will just kind of go with that right correct So, so you went to Sarnoff and then you decided to join Amazon, right? Was that was it uh, like so it was D Shaw then Sarnoff then Amazon, yeah. right? So, so it was yeah. yeah, D Shaw was just an offer. I mean, I yeah. never joined okay. them. So I never joined them. I ended up joining Sarnoff in 2005 and then I worked there for a year and a half on various projects. So the work was very interesting. Hmm. Uh, but what I learned there was that uh, while the work was interesting, I mean, there was no business model and hmm. like it was never going to be an interesting business to work for. Hmm. It was like if I had to go into research probably it was a good good place to right. be and I could go do a PhD uh, using sort of the work there but uh, so uh, so then I decided to sort of move on, maybe join a uh, look at joining a company where uh, uh, I think internet was really getting big uh, at that time uh, globally and uh, I think India was just starting to see uh, green shoots as well so uh, so obviously internet companies uh, fascinated uh, I think all of us at that time so I decided to sort of uh, uh, join one of them and thankfully got into Amazon, Amazon. as also in Delhi and then you uh, saw in Bangalore yeah in Bangalore also and, in Bangalore and you had you were there for about a year and you could see Amazon India and you could see that I mean India was was it a focus for Amazon at that time or was it just no, kind so of a satellite like, India yeah. was a satellite office yeah. uh, and they had teams working on uh, AWS they had, we, they had AWS teams they had teams working on payments which I joined and they had teams working on their A9 search engine mm. uh, which was uh, there as well so it was all work for the US business there right. was no India focus or oh, just too early 2007 was as you said like 5% of people had internet and it was like uh 256 kbps at best Got and it. that was called broadband at the time and uh, so it was very very uh, small percentage of uh, the population uh, which so it was very early for an amazon to take a bet and when did amazon.in launch much later that was like uh, uh, 2013 okay so so flipkart preceded amazon.in by like <laughs> six years yeah okay so So basically you were at Amazon, you're at AWS, you're on basically it was like a tech back office, like a satellite yeah. office. And um you got bored there and you said, okay, you know, why isn't there amazon.com in India and hence Flipkart, right? That's like 07, 08, you got 07, to, yeah. 07, yeah. right? And uh you know, the thing is that for the Indian market, you had to optimize for the fact that most people didn't have internet connections at the time it was still very much a cash based economy it was pre mobile um certainly pre indian mobile yeah. all those kinds of things meant the difficulty level was just much higher oh yeah right? yeah it, i mean it was like 
think about like what when Amazon started in the US, it was probably from an internet standpoint that era, but from an infrastructure standpoint, even like worse, there were no right. credit cards when you could pay online. There was no UPS or uh, FedEx to deliver your packages. But then the offline logistics was also hard because India's roads saying, yeah. and so on weren't even built, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so, so the digital was hard, but the physical was also physic, hard. Physical was e e even harder, right? right. Uh, so, so no warehouses, no UPS, FedEx. Uh, no large distributors of books where you could just plug into like a couple of distributors and should, should do and get like stack. millions of <laughs> millions of books uh, up and running uh, within. Uh, so we had to do uh, all of that. Uh, so how 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 did you do that? Because I mean, you're talking about that's not just building Amazon; that's also building FedEx. Yeah, pieces yeah, of FedEx, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, there's some tweets. We might put up some tweets of you actually going and like delivering packages and whatnot, right? Yeah. So you're delivering packages. Also, if it's a cash economy. What if they don't have the cash on delivery? Now you've taken the hit of the delivery cost. Right. That raises costs through the whole... There's so many logistical issues here. T tell us about kind of how you kind of dealt with that. Yeah. So when we started, we were obviously, I mean, very uh, small, like almost any like any garage startup in the in the US, just the, uh, just the two of us, we were bootstrapped. We had put in four or $5,000 each of our own sort of savings hmm. uh, into the company. And so no venture capital, no angel investment. Oh, so yeah. So, I mean, to paint the picture, again, 2007, five like 20, 25 million people online in India. Uh, and I mean, you could count the venture, number of venture capitalists on sort of your fingertips, literally. Right. So there were like six, seven of them with small funds, like uh, 20 million, 50 million, 50 million mm. uh, sort of fund sizes for the VCs. Uh, there were some PE funds which are large, but they had, were not invested in Had there been in, any, in internet. I mean, th there was emphasis, right? Right. That was like the big Indian tech story, right. I think. Um, and, uh, so there were these IT services companies, yeah. Infosys, Wipro. Right. Yeah. And but that's not what we think of as tech. I mean, correct. cause they were consult, they were not product companies. I mean, yes. it was fine. And I respect, you know, them building the businesses at the time they did. They helped kind of put Indian software on the on map. The map. Yeah, yeah. Right. But they were not product companies. So that was the only precedent in India that was yeah. success, The other right? precedent was, I mean, all these offshoring offices. So Google mm -hmm. had an office, right. like Amazon, Microsoft had an office for a long time, Texas Instruments. IBM lot had. Of, IBM had, right. like lots of uh, hardware companies also did. So NVIDIA had an office. Mm. Uh, so all these uh, large tech, US tech players had important teams. And in Yahoo had a big office. We ended up hiring a lot of people from Yahoo. Mm. Uh, Yahoo had a big office in Bangalore, AOL, yeah, all of them. So I think that's where the product and tech talent came from. Came from. from. And that's it. where sort of it existed. Because they learned what world class was. Yes. And then, you know, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is actually something, you know, people talk about like, quote, brain drain, but then there's this other kind of like brain circulation or brain regain where, you know, certainly a big part of India's rise is the diaspora going abroad, building the reputation, having capital and talent come back, know-how coming back. Okay, an Indian successful in the U.S. Okay, maybe we'll set up an office in India. Okay, now Indians within India learn something. So there's like that kind of loop, and you yes. saw a big yeah, piece yeah, of yeah. that, right? Correct. Yeah, exactly. And so the logistics part, I'd love to understand that because, okay, so you, I mean, I'm just thinking about level of difficulty. This is like scaling Everest without a map, okay? <laughs> yeah. So it's 2017, you have no angel investment or venture capital. Yeah. There's no like success stories that you can point to, at least domestically, you can point to it globally, yes. right? Um, there's there's very little in the way of physical logistics, right? Yeah. So while it's true that the Amazon.com business model has worked, and you could also see that it had been cloned in China, right? And that that has, was starting to work at that time. Yeah. Even the Chinese tech story only truly built out in the 2010s, but there were, yes. there were some stories of yeah. Chinese tech success then, right? Um, it wasn't at total zero. 
India was even further back. So how did you manage like the the, the logistics of everything? Like, yeah. did you deliver yourself? You built your own, yeah. you know, network of drivers. How, how should I think about that? Yeah. Yeah. So for the first uh, two, three years, we were selling only books. Mm -hmm. And there were some small uh, companies like UPS and FedEx, local companies in India, uh, courier companies, which were which would sort of uh, were uh, good at delivering documents. And mm -hmm. hence... I think with books, they were able to manage uh, our business right. and scale. So we just uh, partnered take, with them. Take and, the Amazon model of starting yeah, with books. and started with books. And on the supplier side, we just went from small distributor to small distributor to publisher. Like We had to go to like 20, 30 of them instead of like one or two because there was no large aggregator mm. who was aggregating books uh, at, a, at a large scale. So, so we aggregated uh, that and we put that all on, uh, online. And we started with a very simple uh, uh, USP that what you see is what you get. I mean, even mm. doing that in India was uh, was good enough and because the there was nothing no, else. There's no there's no uh, hidden costs. There's none of that. Right. It was, basically, it was like a WYSIWYG for prices. Right? Yeah, WYSIWYG for prices and for delivery. Like you will get if you order, you will sort of get it within. Uh, three to five days. And, and explain why that was an innovation. It's because people were used to haggling, they were used to hidden costs or something like that. Is yeah. that what it was? Yeah, so retail in India is, uh, uh, at, th at that time, wasn't very well developed. It was a uh, 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 completely fragmented market, no, no large retail brands. Hmm. So Indians had never really seen customer service, uh, <laughs> so right. to speak. So if you went to a small Indian mom and pop shop, the sign on the uh, on the shop would say once sold no return uh, so that right. was sort of the level of <laughs> customer service policy sure. right. in india so so there was basically since no brands were built there was sort of lack of trust in the system from both the seller and the buyer right right so uh, so just launching something online and saying yeah what you see is what you get because online you you really can't get a hold of the person if right. you if you if uh, you've paid money and if you don't get what you uh, wanted, then what happens? This is this is actually, so, I mean, in the 50s US, 60s US, like big chains like McDonald's were actually, today people, you know, are tired of them or negative on them in the US. But in India, they're actually good. And they were good in the 50s and 60s because it was like, okay, this is a large multinational. I know I can get a consistent interface right. to them. Even if they burn their coffee, they're going to burn their coffee in the exact same way. So at least it's consistent, yeah. right? They they only accept cash. They have accounting practices. The person can't take a kickback at the counter, all the type of stuff, et cetera, right? And so like, um, so the multinational model actually helped establish trust within India for kind of scale commerce. So is would you would you? Uh, that's basically what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it sort of probably uh, is a similar story, but mm. happened in the 50s, 60s uh, in the U.S. Yeah. This is a broader thing where I think in many ways like. Uh, the, the U.S. is becoming more like the India of my youth, right? Mm -hmm. With a lot of, you know, like a lot of smart people who just can't get it together as a society, you know? And lots of, you know, communal stuff, all the type of stuff, unfortunately, in the U.S. Conversely, India is becoming in some ways like the 50s U.S., mm -hmm. where there's like a, you know, sort of ideology that has wrapped together a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different languages into a coherent nation. Yeah. Um, there's now like a highway system. There's like shared common infrastructure. The government is actually executing in like a, surprisingly good way you know I, I as i said i'm i'm only moderately bullish on the indian state and extremely bullish on the indian network but i'm moderately bullish on the indian state they've actually executed fairly well over the last you know a few decades and so in some ways like the 50s us is sort of a cognate where things that worked then are kind of working now like the big box you know big multinational that's actually good in india it's novel it's good right yeah. it's good customer service so so you took some of that playbook what else did you do? yeah 
Yeah, so we took that and uh, we implemented obviously at a very small scale, mm. and uh, and we started growing uh, pretty rapidly after six months of of launching. Uh, uh, Google sort of indexed our results, mm. and uh, we, since we didn't have any money to sort of acquire customers, that was where uh, it came sort from. of uh, Google SEO became uh, our sort of free marketing channel. And once customers sort of started buying from us, they started buying uh, regularly because all these were like early adopters looking for books on, on online. Mm. And uh, and they were sort of happy paying online with their credit cards. They were like really, really early adopters who had internet and credit cards right? Uh, and all of that. So, so building the books business was uh, uh, a little bit of a breach from there uh, because we had on the back end the courier services, we had Mm. Uh, we knew how to sort of then tie with more and more distributors. We went to, uh, from bank, we started with Bangalore. We went to Delhi, we went to Mumbai. We tied up with all the local, uh, distributors everywhere. Uh, then we also reached out to the U S distributors, uh, a couple of them and, uh, got a lot of international books uh, mm. on the platform. And, uh, within two years we were sort of, uh, obviously the biggest online book uh, platform uh, in uh, in the country and uh, one of the larger e-com uh, platforms as well and that's when a couple of VCs started uh, calling us. It was like late 2000s. This was uh, 2009. 2009. Yeah, okay. mid 2009 and we started talking to them uh, to raise money. So one, one thing about this, I mean in, in the US, uh, I recall Bezos saying that the reason that he um, picked books specifically as a segment was first there's lots of SKUs. Correct. So there's a lot of um, inventory. So the internet offers an advantage over a physical store. There's only like, I don't know, a few kinds of soda. And so a physical store can stock one, you know, or a yeah. few SKUs. And they're right? all replaceable, right? I mean they're exactly they're all replaceable. And and so whereas books are non fungible and there's yeah. a very large variety, right. number one. So the internet gives you an advantage. Number two is um, shipping you know, it's hard to like break a book yeah, when yeah, shipping yeah. it, right? And in, and in India, books are very cheap as well. They're like five to six dollars. Yes. Yeah. So it's easy to sort of put your, uh, use a credit card and buy it online. And you don't really need to put, you don't really need a lot of trust. Right. While buying a book. Whereas so, while buying electronics, it's like hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Then people, it's a, it's a bigger, yeah. bigger purchase in there. Yes. And so then the other thing is also like you could take an order and then get the cash and then you basically would, you know, where you could concede is on shipping time. You could say, we will get this to you in four to eight weeks, but they might not be able to get it at all elsewhere. And then you can go and order from the distributor. Yeah. And so this way you don't have inventory risk since you only actually get it from the wholesaler yeah. at the time that um, the orders actually come in, right? Yeah. Is correct. that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then you can sort of cash because it'll be a long tail, maybe Harry Potter or something like that. You have enough orders that you'll have quicker shipping because you can keep the correct. inventory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so it's funny. So that playbook worked in the U.S. and also worked in India. Yes, in uh, in a similar way. And India is a much smaller country, so we could actually do like two to three day delivery, almost across like 80, 90 percent of India, even when we didn't have mm. inventory. Oh, really? Um, yeah, Why is that? Because so that's actually surprising. Because I think international distributors to get the books into India and so yeah. on. Yeah. No, when uh, international obviously took two three weeks. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, but if it was there in India with somebody else, if we didn't have it in our warehouse and it was in our distributor's warehouse, and we could still sort of get it to the customer within three four days. And and that's actually that is actually a little surprising to me because the shipping. I would have thought would be more expensive and less reliable than I guess India did have a postal service. Yeah, yeah. So India had that. a postal service, yeah. and there were these uh, 
uh, as i said uh, these companies uh, which are good at uh, documents banking documents mm. and stuff like that because so that's, you leaned on because the banking system had a lot of need for couriers and uh, yeah everything uh, needs to be in person yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right yeah so yeah. so there was that system which worked for books uh, pretty well so i think it became way more complicated once we launched electronics in 2010 that's where the whole logistics story sort of started to become because now a reality so tell tell us about that yeah. what, what, what happened yeah so books was uh, I think as I think as you said as Bezos also said is probably the perfect category to start with uh, uh, an e-commerce company and uh, we didn't we sort of kind of looked at the lessons he had learned and uh, also picked mm. up uh, the category and made sense uh, and got lucky with it uh, I think it was uh, when we launched electronics in 2010 uh, that uh, we sort of uh, had to go back to the drawing board completely Okay. Uh, so Amazon didn't go from books to electronics. That was not their second category. What did they do afterwards? Was it like, sort of was. I think they did yeah. media, and then I think they did electronics uh, okay. as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is how is is how I remember it. Uh, but for us, it was <clears throat> very clear in India, like electronics was a large category, mm. uh, and we were always clear that books was uh, going to be the starting point, but it was a very small market in India. Right. Much smaller than the U.S. But it is. But all the other advantages, it's an elite market. So yeah. if you can get like tastemakers, writers, engineers, et cetera, to use you, then when you scale it to other things, they're kind of upstream culturally of others. Sort of like Facebook starting in Harvard. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, right, yeah. could diffuse out. So, so uh, if you're, that's the other good aspect of that as an right. as initial starting place, yeah. right? But go ahead. So, how, so electronics, why, that was a big level because yeah. now the value of the so goods we launched, increased. Yeah, so yeah. we launched electronics in 2010 and our books business was growing crazy. It was growing like 20, 25% month over month. Doubling every, yeah. doubling every three, four months. Wow. Uh, and we were just struggling managing that scale. Uh, so that was great. We thought, I mean, okay, let's, uh, now is a good time to launch electronics. We had just raised Series B from Tiger, mm. global, uh, their first large investment in India at the time. And Leaf Excel, Leaf right? Excel, yes, yeah. Yep. And, uh, uh, and we said, okay, uh, we had uh, a, a few new people uh, to launch the category. And we thought we'll launch, and I mean it's going to grow as fast as as books is growing. Uh, but uh, uh, after we launched, one month went by, two, three, four, five, six, six months went by, and we were stuck. Uh, I remember almost like just hundred orders a day, uh, and it was not growing at all for mm. six months. While books was just flying, flying. Yeah. So, so what was it? Was the holdup? Yeah. So then we, I think after four or five months of. Just waiting and watching. We said, "Okay, we need to do something. Right. <laughs> something about yes, it. Yes. This is not. This is not working. It's right. not going to work without getting into it." So, so then we spent the next couple of months really looking at. Uh, this is like 2010-ish. This is 2010. Yeah, yeah, middle of 2010. Uh, we start. Uh, we spent a lot of time looking at. Okay, what are the barriers uh, for the customers, right? Uh, and we did a lot of work directly with customers, talking to. Uh, quite a few of them directly looking at our data and uh, making sense of things, and three things really became clear uh, mm. to us. One was that, uh, as I said, I mean, books in India are like five, six dollars each, uh, so customers were willing to pay online, and they were sort of uh, and books don't break, so their downside risk was low. Yeah, but so for electronics they wanted to do yeah, cash and delivery or something. So electronics, no. So first thing was, uh, so they didn't want. They were okay buying books. Then they were early book buyers or early adopters. So they were okay buying a five six dollar book from an unknown brand. Like mm-hmm. Flipkart wasn't the brand, right? So they're okay. Like Flipkart, somebody is there, but yeah, I'll get my book. So that's great yep. for five six dollars. 
with the electronics with $200 they were like oh, who are you who are you if something was wrong what's going to happen so we didn't really so they wanted to buy from a tra- more, little more trusted source mm. than just an unknown brand so so one uh, outcome was clear that we need to to start uh, investing in building a brand that yeah mm. flipkart sort of uh, that you can trust us and uh, and you know us and thankfully in india uh, there was sort of again a large uh, equally uh, good in, uh, sort of ecosystem of of brands local uh, hmm. brands unilever in india png unilever right. especially unilever had a large presence and so how could you leverage that you just used some of their tactics like brand advertising so we used some yeah. of the tactics and people so we, ah, we like we hired our first head of uh, marketing and brand was an ex unilever uh, person so so brand is something many people don't understand especially technical people because it sounds like vague and marketing ish or, or what have you yeah and you know i've always thought of it or eventually i was able to think of it as the set of associations that come to mind when you mention a word or show a logo that's brand yeah. right so it's like the word cloud that pops around pops something around, yeah. right and if it's a blank that people draw then there's no brand association and if it's negative words then it's a negative brand connotation yeah and so you can actually do that empirically where it's like you give stimulus and response right that and so what you're doing is effectively installing in lots of brains this response which is when you see flipkart when you when you see the flipkart logo when you hear the flipkart word yeah. then you think online shopping trustworthy, trustworthy and so right yeah, yeah, exactly so so how did you actually do that because yeah, yeah. it's actually unusual to hear a relatively early stage startups thinking of brand yeah. as their so as the, yeah so the yeah. india playbook was very different right like yeah. amazon probably didn't do a brand ad probably for 10 years yeah exactly google right. I, I don't think google did and add in the US because uh, for, for 10 odd years. It was but, a long time. 2010, they did like yeah, a Super Bowl ad. It was yeah, like, they, right. they were the giant company before they yeah, did yeah, yeah. yeah. But in India, since, I mean, why we needed to do the ad was very clear that uh, our uh, branding was very clear because customers wanted uh, to buy on, online. Buying online, there was a lot of mistrust mm. in, uh, in the consumer's mind. In general, I mean, as, as I told you, in India, re- there was no developed retail. So customers were not very trustful anyway of retailers mm. uh, in general uh, from people who used to buy stuff. So if buying online was a step beyond, right? I mean, you're buying from somebody you don't know at all and you can't uh, go and uh, uh, get hold of them. So so building a brand became like a big imperative. So what did that mean? Imperative. Does that mean billboards? Does that mean TV ads? Yeah, I'll come to that. So, yeah, sure. so that became the first one. And the second uh, issue we found was that uh, again, books was being bought by early adopters, whereas we wanted to sell electronics to like uh, the next set of users mm. who uh, mostly did not have uh, good ways of paying online. This was very, very early days in India. So India, again, had 30, 40 million people uh, online by that time, 2010, uh, uh, or maybe 50 million people by 2010-11. And credit card penetration was very, very low. So very few people uh, had credit cards, less than 10 million, I guess, hmm. at that time. And uh, in, in the, 2010, less yeah, than 10 million people had credit cards. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And our 10 million people who had active cards. I mean, sure. people would have cards, but uh, people using cards was was very low. And people ca- using cards online would have been like less than five million for sure. Yep. Uh, so very difficult sort of to figure out a way to for people to pay. And there was internet banking, uh, which was uh, also prevalent at the time, but also not uh, very ubiquitous. Uh, so. Uh, so cash on delivery that you pay when you re- uh, you pay by cash. And this became, is the third. This is the third big one. This is the second one. Okay, so sir, okay. using cash to pay became uh, another big uh, barrier to overcome that uh, we needed to collect cash. 
and do cash on delivery. And the third big one we found out was that customers were asking, what if uh, I order and I get the product, but something goes wrong? I mean, after I open the package, you are gone. Uh, either it's broken or it doesn't work after a couple of days, what happens? Uh, so we had to come up with this uh, thing called 30-day uh, 30-day no-questions-asked return policy, which in the U.S. is probably just part of the course. Mm. But in, in India, it was like the innovation <laughs> of mm. the decade. So, uh, because I said, uh, in India, retail was no once sold, no return. Right. So to go from once sold, no return to 30-day no-questions-asked uh, returns was uh, like a huge uh, huge pivot, right? That's interesting. You, you get out of the low-trust disequilibrium right. into the higher-trust. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So this was basically just thinking of, okay, if we have to solve this at scale, uh, and uh, what should it be, right? And uh, and can we can we get it done? So obviously there was a lot of debate on uh, on misuse and uh, how will it work? How much will it cost us to to do that? Uh, and we went back and forth, but it was clear that without this, uh, we won't be able to. Uh, we wouldn't be able to sort of uh, sell online, sell electronics online. So, so we did th these three things: and brand, brand cash and delivery, cash and delivery and returns, and returns, all of which are like trust building things. Trust building, exactly. Yep. All of these were really trust building things. And then, uh, going back to your question on brand, uh, then it was very clear what the job for, uh, to be done uh, was for the brand. It was to build awareness and trust on these parameters. Mm -hmm. uh, so to w first build awareness that yeah, Flipkart is a place you can trust. Flipkart exists. Uh, Flipkart does, uh, you can buy books and electronics on Flipkart. Uh, and and the second was that you can trust Flipkart, that you can uh, uh, you can pay, uh, that if something goes wrong, we'll take care of you. 30-day, uh, mm -hmm. uh, no questions asked. So we, we created three spots. Uh, one on cash on delivery, one on this 30-day returns policy, and one uh, just on uh, the assortment uh, that you can buy anything and everything uh, under the sun. These are iconic ads. I mean, uh, we, we got lucky with, uh, we worked with a startup uh, uh, advertising agency. Which one? Uh, we didn't go to, it was called Happy Creative Services. Okay. Uh, we didn't, we talked to, uh, I think three, four established ones, but ended up choosing, uh, ended up choosing these uh, guys who had just started their uh, new agency. And, uh, uh, and the concept they came up with was that uh, buying online is uh, so we use kids as adults in the uh, in the ads and hmm. the sort of message was that buying online is as uh, is sort of kids play I mean if kids can do it you can do it as well so hmm. and that worked uh, brilliantly uh, brilliantly well really interesting so that's so different than almost any American startup story you've ever heard that like advertising and brand building was like a core thing early was on. A core, yeah, exactly. Right? It was a core thing early on, hmm. which is like very different from, so if, if he had uh, a lot of uh, mentors, let's say from the US and if he kept hearing yeah. their advice, we would have never done that. Yep. So, uh, so it, it was very, very, uh, very different from uh, the US uh, uh, way of doing things. And then it took off. So we, again, uh, went from I think 10 million to like 100 million uh, run rate within a year hmm. uh, and at that time we hadn't built our own logistics or our own delivery fleet 
uh, and we were doing cash on delivery and uh, our uh, partners, third party partners, the sort of UPS FedEx equivalent in India uh, were sort of not able to manage uh, the complex cash on delivery process uh, yeah. at scale because there's uh, a million ways that can go wrong. Yeah, yeah. there's this a million ways cash on delivery uh, can go wrong. Uh, so, uh, so we were again back to the drawing board. Okay, now we figure out how to sell, but we need to figure out how to deliver at yep. scale. Uh, and then we start said, okay, let's. Uh, we tried working with them for four or five months. Uh, this is now 2011. This is 2011. Yeah, and uh, but we were clear that they didn't have. Uh, they didn't have sort of the right expertise logistically and especially around uh, all, um, I think more importantly from a technology perspective, they didn't have any platforms or technology to help them sort of manage uh, uh, complex operations at, at scale. And mm. this was a very complex operation, much more complex than they were used to. So I think our intuition was that you would need to really leverage uh, uh, technology to, to do that. So we started an experiment uh, within Bangalore, uh, in a couple of uh, areas, and we hired a bun we hired a team of like 20, 30 people to deliver uh, products within Bangalore, and we did that for two, three months, uh, and uh, then we looked at the data. The data was just like very obvious. I mean, we we were seeing 45% more repeat rates in those areas. We were seeing hmm. NP. We used to measure NPS uh, very religiously across the business. So NPS rates were again 20, 30 points higher. So, I mean, within three months, the data was clear. So we uh, then so, and there decided to just uh, basically scale it up to like 20 cities in the next, uh, in, the, in the next one year. We, after, in 20, by end of 2011, we had a thousand people in 20 cities in India delivering uh, packages uh, within our team, uh, in our own team. So that's really interesting. Basically, if I can play that back, one, one aspect is you almost did like a case control study right? Like you've got all your cities and then you have an intervention here and then you're seeing that NPS is up and so on. And you know how much capital you invested to do that. And you could probably even say we invested X of capital, our sales is up 45%, our NPS is up, you know, our return uh, or our return customer rate is up. Therefore, we're investing X of capital, we're getting Y out, Y is much greater than X and then scale it out, right? Like essentially kind of calculation that yeah. one can do. And when you've got geographically isolated markets, you can run those kinds of experiments. The other thing that, you know, also came to mind for me when you were talking about returns and COD is, um, you know, there's way more code paths when you have returns and when you have COD because it's like, oh, you send it. Oh, they send it back. Oh, you send it again. Oh, they like, you know, they don't give the cash this time or whatever. Yeah. Like now you can have ping pong back and forth and every single one of those, you'll have somebody who returns it like five times or something like that. And it's not just code, but it's also a logistical thing of yeah. making sure that you have some cutoff rules. They can't return it like three times in a row or something, right? All that type of stuff you had to figure out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, since, and since you had to figure out all that type of stuff, nobody else was going to do that for you. Yes, exactly. Right? So you couldn't so, outsource that. Yeah, you couldn't outsource that uh, at India all. India's in the line for outsourcing. <laughs> you have to insource yeah. it. Okay, good. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that became a huge competitive advantage for, for us, right? Over mm -hmm. And it probably last, I mean, that advantage lasted us for like more than a decade, almost like uh, seven, uh, seven, eight years at least. Because Amazon came in 2013, had to go through the same uh, same issues, try to copy a lot of 
what we had uh, what we had done but took them a lot of time and money to 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 do that yeah you know the thing that's interesting about this is you know i've also like uh you know helped build a clinical genomics factory and um one thing i observed at that is that uh i think there's two kinds of innovation i call them the rhino's horn and boosted mm -hmm. metabolism, right? So the rhino's horn is what it sounds like. It's like a big perceptible horn. Oh, Google has PageRank. That's its big innovation. Yeah. And because it's legible, because it's perceptible, people can be like, oh, I'm going to copy. Because they can see it, make sense of it. Make sense of it, right? Yeah. Whereas boosted metabolism, it's like, a, why is it cheetah fast, okay? Maybe you can point its legs or something like that, but it's, you know, just a thousand metabolic changes where, you know, it can stretch more and so mm -hmm. on. It, it's it's not like any one thing. Right, you can it's point a thousand it. things coming together to... Yeah. Exactly. And and it's not like it's got wheels for legs, you yeah. know, it's not like it's got a rocket for a tail or something like that, right? So it's not like very visible or legible, and therefore it's harder to copy, and therefore it's a more durable competitive advantage. But it's also harder to articulate, and so you have to just see it in the graph, right? Um, and you can see that it's faster, but the fact that you can't easily explain it is actually an advantage, it's illegible. Yeah. Right. So you guys had a kind of boost in metabolism where it was the hard to copy thing where in a sense, sometimes the fact that one can't just bullet point the innovation. I mean, you can now, you know, you've got these three things and, yeah. you know, the returns and so on. You can, you can explain it, but it's not just like a one liner. Yeah. Right? Oh, it's not a one liner at all. I mean, if you go back to the logistics problem again in, in India, uh, uh, like addresses are not really geocoded. I mean, the address could be. Uh, especially in a tier two, tier three town, could be like as amorphous as or oh, behind this temple. Oh man, right? <laughs> this, yeah. this person's name and like this. Uh, it's a pre GPS yeah. or this is a pre ubiquitous yeah. iPhones, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So behind this temple, so so all that information, all that all that knowledge, sort of got encoded in our own systems, right? Uh, because our system knew where uh, this address uh, would be and could do it, uh, could sort of deliver uh, more efficiently as it learned over time. So you're actually mapping India in part. In part, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. as, as you start going from 1 million and then 10 million and more Indians, you start hitting locations that are more off yeah. the grid, right? I see, yeah. especially that first delivery to a spot, Correct. right? Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, so that's the sort of system that got, uh, that got built and uh, became like one of our big uh, enablers. You must have been a big, you know, a big part of that electronics must have been people buying their first phone or something like right. that, right? Yeah. So people must have had to buy a phone for somebody else because many people didn't have phones, right? Yeah. So probably a significant chunk of those orders, because how are you going to buy online if you don't have a phone, right? So, and it probably meant that your interface was like more Android first and more mobile first yeah. or what have you, right? T t tell me about that. Yeah, so that shift started happening in uh, 2013 and 14. Yep. Uh, uh, till then, it was mostly on the web, web. web. Okay, okay. Yeah, it was mostly on the web. And then Android uh, and mobile. So that was a time when mobile phone prices became like $200, came down to $200. A good mobile phone uh, uh, started costing that much. And then uh, it really took off. Uh, and with, I remember Xiaomi and Motorola were really the two uh, big sort of uh, uh, beneficiaries of. Uh, of the takeoff and both of them worked very closely with us so we mm. in 2013 we had a huge innovation which changed sort of the way uh, mobiles were sold uh, in India so bef uh, so bef before we did that 90% uh, of 95% of mobiles were sold obviously offline in India mm. and there was uh, this whole chain uh, uh, with multiple people in the middle right middlemen uh, so it started with obviously a brand and there was a national distributor then you had state level 
distributor, then you had a city level person, all these guys and then you had, the and then yep. you had sort of a retailer, like all the way down. Uh, and uh, it was a pretty inefficient sort of supply chain. Uh, so what Motorola and then Xiaomi did with Flipkart was they said, okay, if we uh, can sort of design a phone, uh, which is 20, 30, 30% cheaper, mm. with, uh, but with the same quality, uh, and we can sort of uh, sell it direct to the customer, online only, like yep. this, so this phone won't be sold offline. Uh, can we uh, make a dent in the market? And can we uh, increase sort of uh, uh, the share of the market? Can we increase the number of people buying phones? Uh, so uh, we did that and, uh, in 2013 and just took off like crazy. I mean, we, I remember we launched it at like 12, did that go? 12 PM in the night yeah. and our, everything crashed. Like <laughs> all our systems, we hadn't seen a spike like that. Uh, for a long time and uh, all our systems crashed the first time uh, first time we did it it became uh, a rage because you were getting uh, a really high quality like samsung like uh, really good phone but at like almost half the cost mm, uh, because you cut out so many because steps. you just it cut out all the steps yeah, yeah, yeah because you cut out all the steps uh, and and uh, sort of all the inefficiency in the system so what I always say, going direct. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And so, and then how many phones, do you know how many phones you sold? Like total? Do you have any number? It's got to be millions for sure. Today, but. I mean, I think one out of two phones sold in India sold online. So it is like phones is a heavily penetrated uh, category. Uh, is the most penetrated uh, category online. I mean, we would have, I mean, we would have sold upwards of, uh, uh, in the first two, three years, upwards of 10, 20 million phones. Uh, I think now we would have, yeah. Hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions of phones now. Uh, the thing that's interesting about that is basically, I remember, so this is something that happened around 2013, 2014, the whole free basics thing, right? right? So for those who don't remember this, basically Facebook, you know, came in and they were saying, hey, we will subsidize uh, your connection to the internet, right. but we're going to gate it through Facebook. And, um, you know, this is something which will get a lot of Indians on the internet. And what's interesting was at the time, the Indian tech ecosystem resisted this yeah, because, because yeah. it was all going to get centralized through Facebook. And I remember thinking from the outside, I was like, you know, because I was, I was in the U.S. at that time and so on. I was like, well, you know, look, isn't something better than nothing, mm -hmm. right? And the thing is that, you know, uh, what, what happened, India actually did something that China also did, which is they said no to free basics. And, but then they also built something better, right, with Reliance Geo and yeah. so on. They built something domestic better. And just like, you know, China, for example, they did ban foreign social media, but then they built their own thriving ecosystem. And I think a lot of the sort of industrial policy or protectionism type stuff, they, people will, you know, be quick on the ban, but they don't realize how hard it is to build. Yeah. And you actually, that's, that's actually the real hard part. It's easy to ban. It's hard to build. And if you ban without being able to build, you just lower the quality of life for everybody. Right. So if it's, it's sort of like asking for the ball, you know, you're, you're in sports, right? <laughs> okay. I'm asking the ball. You better dunk the ball yeah. if you're asking for the ball. <laughs> but India's tech ecosystem did dunk the ball. And you, you were kind of watching the whole free yeah, basics yeah, yeah. thing on your side. Right. So it looks like absolutely the right decision from 10 years later. Now the whole thing is not choke pointed. I mean, I respect Zuck. I respect Facebook, but I'm also glad the Indian ecosystem is not choke pointed through Facebook. Right. Um, so how did that look? like in 2013 2014 yeah so 2013 2014 was sort of the pre-geo days uh, right internet mobile internet was uh, growing but growing like at a steady pace not like growing very very fast it was still expensive i think 
one GB would still cost you like more than a dollar and a half. Uh, Tell people about, by the way, like for global viewers, what is Geo? What is Reliance Geo? Um, how did that come on the scene? So, and yeah, why? so Reliance Geo uh, is now, uh, I think, uh, the largest uh, telecom player uh, in India or in the top two. Uh, the other one is Airtel. Uh, but Reliance Geo came in at a time when there were already eight to 10 players. They were the last ones actually to enter, but they took a huge bet on 4G. Uh, and uh, uh, and on uh, in, uh, and on mobile internet and the crash prices that basically uh, business model was to uh, deliver uh, very very high speed internet 4G internet at prices which were one fifth to one tenth of the market price and the concept was they get a time. subscription and they just you know you can build so much wealth on the internet that crash the cost of that and yeah. build a market and so on, yeah. which seems to have played out right yeah and it's, yeah. Uh, and before they came in i mean maybe there were 100 million people uh, using mobile internet uh, and uh, not using it like as a daily part of their life like uh, it it was mostly chat and search and maybe some commerce uh, it wasn't really a lot of video or uh, uh, and it was it wasn't sort of uh, you were not like living your life of your mm. mobile, whereas today, I mean, uh, you can uh, get, you can do your work, you can get, uh, you can sort of uh, get education classes, you can obviously get all your you entertainment. You can live online. You, you can get all your entertainment. I mean, just become, became a part of people's life after, uh, after Geo came in. Yeah. And, you know, what's, what's happened here, by the way, something I remark on is I think Geo really started going vertical. Like it came out 2015, 2016, and, right. then, and then it was like huge by 2018 or thereabouts, yeah, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think we've crossed a billion Indian mobile phone users now, and we'll get to 1.3 or something. I, I don't remember the exact number. Last I looked, it was like 860 or yeah. something like that, right? So um, one thing that's happened, I think, is that the people don't know is Indians are or soon will be the majority of English speakers on the internet. Yes. Right? Maybe they already are, but May they'll soon be, yeah, for soon, sure. Soon be, depending, depending on whether, whether you define how many English yes. speakers there are in India and are they first or second language. Yeah. And the thing is that you have uh, these amazing like YouTube channels, which are like villagers from rural India, and they're just online. You know, the, one, the guys who are making food and stuff mm -hmm. like that, you've seen that, right? And uh, the thing is that a, a gigantic part of social media audiences actually are Indians who are lurking. And, you know, one of my friends, you know, Akshay has this line, which is, um, you know, that uh, Indians don't need the H-1B visa anymore. We have the TCPIP visa, <laughs> yeah. right? Because you're basically online, you know, and, and Indians are getting acculturated to the West or to more the generally West. the global yeah. internet, right? They're able to see the memes and they can type without an accent, right? And a good chunk of the pseudonymous accounts online are actually Indian accounts. So you saw a bunch of that, right? And like, of course, Flipkart was more on the e-commerce end, yeah. right? But you started to see the, the growth of Indian culture. I mean, you were kind of, you know, Indian internet culture. T tell us about that, if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, as you said, I mean, we were very sort of focused on uh, the commerce side of it. So I think on the culture side, yeah, probably I'm not the best person to, uh, to comment. I think I can, what... Uh, I clearly saw was that after Geo happened, I mean, before Geo happened, there was actually a little bit of a lull in the whole industry. I mean, I remember mm. 2015, 16, uh, the numbers for all uh, internet companies, including like YouTube, Google, uh, everybody was static. Uh, nothing was growing. 
and uh, we were all scratching our heads that uh, if the market doesn't grow, what's going to happen? Right. Uh, what's going to happen here? And you can just see it in all your numbers. Yeah. Geo is just like a huge right. and then, gasoline. Then Geo sort of comes in uh, and 2016, uh, 2017, 18, 19 were uh, just, we saw crazy uh growth, uh, traffic growth leading to obviously conversion growth uh, eventually uh, for all businesses. Uh, and in parallel, I think the big story, the big other stories which started in 2016 along with the geo revolution was a UPI, was a payments revolution. Mm. So talk uh, about that because basically there's demonetization. Front, street, uh, front sort of <laughs> seat as well. Well, so t talk about that because uh, tell people first, what is UPI? It's like yeah. unified payments interface and t tell people about that. Yeah. So UPI uh, is this sort of amazing innovation by uh, uh, by the sort of uh, uh, Indian, uh, you could say, system and uh, government is a big part of it where they uh, created this platform where all the banks uh, had to connect uh, into uh, and uh, be available uh, to make transactions uh, between uh, bank accounts uh, happen. And... Then uh, this platform was made uh, open for uh, entrepreneurs uh, and tech companies to build uh, uh, to build uh, customer-facing, merchant-facing uh, apps and use cases and businesses. Mm. Uh, and that's uh, and it's a government project that actually worked, or it's actually is a quasi-government project. It's like it's like yeah. government-aligned. It was yeah. a government-aligned. Yeah, that's the right way to put it. It was a quasi sort of it, it's a government-aligned project. Uh, it is run by NPCI, which is uh, owned by the top 10 banks. Uh, its shareholding is uh, the top banks uh, of the country. But uh, the regulation, obviously, and uh, uh, comes from, from the government. And uh, the government has been a big supporter of, uh, of driving this forward. See, this is the thing. The thing about India is I had to kind of retrain my machine learning model, right? Because it's almost like being on a planet where the gravity is pointing in the opposite direction, <laughs> okay? And the reason is in the U.S., like over the last 10, 20 years, what you've seen is the government just failing harder and harder with more and more money at the local, state, and federal level, at San Francisco, at California, at the federal level, like healthcare.gov, massive software failure despite all this money. California, their giant you know, high-speed rail train, hundreds of billions of dollars, total disaster. San Francisco, $12 billion a year for the city. It's covered in poop and needles and syringes, and it's a disaster, and people are just leaving the city. You know, 500,000 people left California, San Francisco, all these people leave. There's a little bit of a bounce back, but it's like a, I think it's a dead cat bounce, but still, it's like way down from where it was. And so you see this just basically what you're trained on in the US is the state simply cannot ship software. It can take huge amounts of money. It just blows it all and so on. And that was actually also, frankly, my mental model of India in the 80s the 90s when I visited, right? Because it was, you know, it was the ambassador yeah. and it was, you know, uh, there's ambassador and Limca. There was a licensing regime. You had to get a license for even starting a small business. It was hard to import things. It was exactly backwards. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Like, you know, there was like, the, there was one car. The ambassador was like the one car right. in the entire country, right? And there were a few things. You had some like Coca-Cola, there's Limca or yeah. things like that. But it basically seemed like it was frozen in time, static, Right. And then post-1991, you had liberalization after the fall of the Soviet Union. Again, people you know, may not know this, but just the, I'll probably give a quick like, history of India to open the thing. But liberalization 1991, start, India's economy started taking off. And now what's amazing is I'm actually starting to bet on, I remember actually in the 2000s, you may remember this. Do you remember the golden quadrilateral? 
Yeah. Okay. So I remember seeing that announced in the 2000s. And yeah. I was very, I was like, okay, it's not going to go anywhere. I haven't seen any government project or work. But we have highways now in India, yeah. right? There's, there's like, I remember getting off the plane, I think it was like 2019 or something. And, you know, I come back every few years now. I've come back much more frequently. But I was like, this is incredible. There's, you know, the, the streets are quiet. There's like modern traffic lights and stop signs. People are breaking at stop signs. And so I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Like the India of my memory had just completely transformed and you kind of lived through that and probably it made some of the delivery and logistics easier Easy, and so yeah, on. Right? Yeah, yeah. So when, when did you start to see that the government was actually able to execute or at least, uh, you know, I'm not saying it, it hits it every single time and yeah. there's things like demonetization, which one can argue, but that it was like actually it had a non-zero batting average. When did you feel that like start to happen? Cause that's a relatively new thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that had sort of, yeah, start, I had sort of started feeling that it had started to happen since I think early 2000s. I think mm. with, uh, for sure, with as you said, the golden sort of quadrilateral thing came. Was that the first? At, was, was there anything yeah, else? Came at came at the time, and uh, I mean, in memory of more recent recent examples. Uh, but what was the first? It was like the early 2000s. I mean, was it just like capitalism came in and so on? But like, what, what was happening in the early I 2000s? Think what was happening was that some of these new industries were uh, were sort of starting to boom, and you were starting to see some of the Western brands also enter India, and things starting to modernize, like uh, food and beverage. Uh, rest, like you talked about McDonald's. McDonald's sort of came in. Uh, from a food uh, uh, food standpoint, uh, you obviously had uh, the big tech companies coming in uh, and setting up satellite offices. Uh, you had uh, the Indian IT uh, services sector grow, starting to grow really fast. You had uh, Indian telecom. Uh, uh, I think telecom was a major uh, sort of boost uh, for the whole uh, uh, economy and the social fabric as well. Uh, so you started to see that happen. So, so that kind of infrastructure prerequisites. And then like, yeah. you know, now we have, there's Golden Quadrilateral, there's UPI, um, and then more generally India Stack. There's India Adder. Stack, there's GST, there's a uniform sort of now uh, uh, tax code for uh, goods and services, which was very complex when he started uh, Flipkart. So why is that better? It's basically just like much easier to calculate now. Your yeah. code is just way... So when we started Flipkart, yeah. it was almost like, uh, in the Indian tax code was almost like you were living in Europe with every country mm. before the European Union. I don't know how it works, but every country having its own sort of uh, tax uh, laws and tax uh, uh, taxation rules uh, and slabs. Uh, and to get that sort of down from uh, like 25 different uh, rules and regulations to like one unified uh, uh, GST regime was, uh, I think, a major uh, big uh, boost as well. And when was this, that? That was 2010? This was no mid middle of yeah, 2010s, yeah, 2015, 16. Uh, See, what's interesting about this is, you know, I'm, I'm big as a quote, decentralization proponent, right? But I'm a pragmatist. And I think there's centralization, decentralization, recentralization. And India, and actually also arguably China, are in the middle of their, uh, maybe China's past this now, but India is in the middle of a, a positive centralization Absolutely. arc, yeah. right? Where 
all of these different languages and cultures and so on are now kind of unified, like, you know, rather than having 25 different, you know, payment codes, it's e pluribusunum. And the U.S. is in the opposite phase of a decentralization arc where the states are increasingly pulling away mm -hmm. from a federal government, right? So that's why I'm saying it's like gravity is reversed and many things are happening in opposite in India than they are in the U.S., which is like a really useful contrast of the yeah. two systems, right? Go ahead. Yeah, so I think that's, uh, and with the, and you touched upon the India stack, uh, the India, I think India stack has been, uh, and uh, the India stack team has been also a major reason for yes, some of great. this digital infrastructure to really uh, come about and be successful. Uh, uh, so the first success was obviously Aadhaar, which is like a ID, a digital ID for more than a billion people. Uh, so getting a digital ID working at that scale in a country like India, uh, was a huge, uh, huge challenge. And that was sort of the first digital win uh, mm -hmm. for India. And that created, uh, I think, a massive confidence that we you could, can, do it. You could do it at scale in many other areas. I think second one uh, became UPI. Uh, where, so talk about that. That was a big yeah. one also. What, so so you, on UPI, the, the philosophy was that uh, uh, in India, well, India was a cash economy, obviously, for the longest time. And uh, it was obviously inefficient from that standpoint. There was a, uh, inefficiency, uh, tax leakage, uh, all sorts of uh, problems uh, because of uh, because of that. And a lot of people were not also part of the banking uh, system uh, in India. So there was sort of a two-pronged approach the government was taking that trying to get uh, hundreds of millions of people uh, to get a bank account. But you can get a bank account if it's not use, useful or usable, then it's uh, not uh, uh, doesn't help. Uh, so UPI was sort of an answer to make it uh, useful, right? If you mm -hmm. can get money in, get money out uh, into your bank account uh, in a very easy way without opening hundreds or thousands of uh, hundreds of thousands of branches all across India for a billion people, that was really uh, critical. So the mobile phone infrastructure enabled so, UPI. So they said, okay, let's ride on the mobile phone infrastructure. Uh, mobile phones, uh, uh, I mean, more than a billion people are going to have mobile phones. More than seven, 800 million people were going to have uh, uh, internet-enabled phones. So how do you uh, leverage that and get banking for everyone uh, onto their mobile phone versus going to a uh, banking branch and, uh, and getting, it, uh, getting it done? So, so they forced all the banks to uh, come onto this platform and be available. Uh, and uh, as I said, the uh, uh, entrepreneurs and internet companies could sort of build uh, uh, applications, uh, banking applications, uh, and payment applications on top of the stack. And so, uh, there was a company started by two ex uh, Flipkart colleagues, which had started building on this stack, uh, which we acquired very early on 2016 called PhonePay. Hmm. And Google in parallel was building uh, an application uh, called Tez, uh, which means fast uh, in, uh, in Hindi. Oh, Tez. So yeah, Tez, actually yeah. I, I know some of the people. So, so basically that you can uh, transact very quickly from bank account to bank account. Uh, and, and Paytm was another established payments company, which was obviously also uh, working, uh, had started working on, on the stack and all of this launched 
in 2016 and six years sort of forward, I think there are now more than, uh, I don't have exact numbers, but definitely more than 300, 350, uh, 300 to 350 million people monthly active uh, transacting uh, users on UPI. Oh, it's, got, it's gotten like whoosh like this. It, yeah. I mean, the thing is, in 2016, there was the demonetization episode where a lot of cash was just turned off. And at first it seemed like, oh, this is a disaster. There were long lines and so on and so forth. And electronic payments were not uptake in before then. But this is kind of what we we're talking about where there was like a, a ban and then a build, right? right? There's many aspects of demonetization, which I would disagree with from a philosophical or whatever level. But the stimulus that it caused in terms of electronic payment uptake that definitely juiced it within like two years. It was yeah. an enormous, enormous jump, right? Is that correct? Right. Yeah, it was definitely, I think, a, uh, I think a big sort of boost for the digital payments uh, industry. But I think... Uh, Could it have happened without I think that? It, would, it was going to happen anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I think uh, it was sort of... I think this was just a coincidence that, yeah, those two things sort of happened during, uh, during that time, uh, probably for different reasons. But uh, uh, I think it was definitely, yeah... Uh, I, I think it's the right probably. place at the right time uh, for that. But today, I mean, uh, UPI has uh, become so ubiquitous that we were just talking to uh, our uh, friends uh, who just came back from uh, Bangalore. Uh, they spent three weeks in Bangalore and uh, they've been living in Singapore for 11 years, so they mm. don't have a phone number in India. And if you don't have a phone number in India, it's hard to use UPI. And they were... Uh, telling us that how they had a, such a hard time uh, during this trip because nobody was accepting cash. Like an auto, <laughs> auto driver was not accepting cash and was saying, what, give me UPI. What and a so flip. This, exactly. What a flip from 10 years and ago. And then this right. guy had to call his father-in-law every time that can you transfer <laughs> 50 rupees to this uh, uh, to this phone number or to this uh, UPI ID so that uh, I can get a ride. So what a flip from like cash and flip card, cash and delivery days that customers are not willing to pay. You, you've discontinued cash and delivery now. No, if you still do cash and delivery, it's going down uh, fairly rapidly. That's amazing. That's actually And just... it's not cash on delivery now. It's actually payment on delivery now. So people basically do UPI when they receive the product. So it's a lot of UPI on, on what, delivery. What's a, that's so amazing. You know, that reminds me of uh, like Uber also actually in 2015 even. They, uh, Uber India had cash, right. right? That was actually a big launch for them. And then, because it was a bottleneck in the market, and now, like, just a, like a, less than a decade later, it's probably flipped, right? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know exactly if they've discontinued. It reminds me of actually Netflix doing mail order DVD, right. and now it's completely flipped to streaming, Pursuing, and they've kind of discontinued yeah, yeah, yeah. it. So, like, it's it's like the stepladder that you need to get to the destination, then you kind of, yeah, you know, you yeah, don't yeah. need it anymore. That's really interesting. Um, what other stuff is like that? I mean, like, obviously, you know, India is now, in many ways, a mobile first, like, flip carts, like, you know, so that flipped over, where mobile right. was an edge case, and then it's the main thing. Yeah. It went from cash... Uh, and credit cards being an edge case to like UPI being the main thing. What are things that kind of flip like that in India? You know, obviously the consumers become much more sophisticated. They're all, you know, they're, they're conversant. You've seen your social media traffic and so on become a thing. What are things that have kind of inverted like that in yeah. your view? I think the other in, inversion obviously is happening on the media side. I think on mm. uh, on uh, consumption uh, of uh, media, uh, I think a lot of it is now on mobile uh, mobile as well. And uh, it's sort of, I think, becoming, you, I think people are spending way more hours on uh, on their mobile phones for entertainment uh, than on uh, TV as well. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that that is uh, also happening, especially uh, after, uh, especially because the uh, mobile internet rates in India are the lowest 
like across the world. Hmm. Uh, it's probably like 10, 12 cents. Uh, oh, you mean, meaning gigabyte. the cost? The, the cost, cost of yes, mo- yes. mobile data is, yep. is, is very low. So, so it enables you to sort of uh, get your day's entertainment for uh, for a very affordable rate. This is another just enormous flipping where India went from like internet you couldn't get for love or money to some of the cheapest high-speed mobile internet in the right. world, like from like all the way in the back to all the way in the front, this giant leapfrogging. Yeah. So you know? India's, yeah, like I think Nandan Lincoln says that India's infrastructure poor, but data are very data rich. So yeah, that's where we are. It's a very different, yeah. Uh, it's a very different environment than anywhere else in the world, I guess. It's really interesting. I mean, the, the, um, okay. So that kind of takes us through, um, like the rise of Flipkart, the 2010s, um, GST, UPI, Author. Do you guys use Author as a login mechanism on the site? You know, like with SingPass, for example, mm-hmm. in Singapore, you can like log into banks with SingPass. Yeah. How, how does Author work? Is it like Facebook login? How, how, how should we think about Not that? really. Aadhaar is mostly used for uh, stuff like KYC and uh, mm. and those things. Banking uh, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It's your digital sort of ID. You don't... Uh, yeah, you, it's it's not like your sort of dig, uh, it's not like your internet ID in in that sense. Uh, so it's uh, it makes all the processes where you need to identify yourself and get registered with uh, with a financial institution or with uh, a government institu- institution easier. Yeah, you know, one of my theses is just like digital currency has sort of converged currency, stocks, bonds, every other kind of financial instrument. I do think that we are getting to eventually a, a digital passport where your other, your Google login, your ENS ID, all those things converge into a single Internet. electronic ID. So this way you don't have to keep typing in your information over and over again. You can just, like your social profile and your government profile and so on. You might choose to have different profiles. Right. But if you want to have one like main profile, you can hit a button and just kind of log in with that, right? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think, I mean, something like that is a systems integration problem where you need somebody who's got a lot of, for lack of a better term, political capital, social capital to be able to drive it. But this is something I've been yeah, thinking it about. It could be something which happens in India first. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, given, again, the, I think the way, I think these things uh, are It's evolving. a greenfield. And yeah, it's a greenfield. And there is a process now to imagine something like this and get sort of build it and get it delivered now in India that, yeah, with the India stack thing that I feel, yeah, it could be. Now, one, of things. one thing that's also pretty impressive. So, you know, you built Flipkart over the 2010s. We've kind of gone through and you electronics was the second category. And then after that, there's, uh, I mean, what should we know about the mid 2010s? Because eventually by 2018 or so, yeah. it was a big enough thing that Amazon, Walmart both vied for it. Amazon uh, or Walmart eventually paid 16 billion for a majority stake. Um, and that was like the first gigantic Indian exit. I mean, 16 billion is a lot, even still for the US. So yeah. that was absolutely gigantic for India, put India on the map. Tell us what you can about that. That's now five years ago, but you know, maybe, maybe yeah, you could yeah. talk about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's all kinds of things which you can't pick up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, so I think uh, going back to, uh, I think the 2011-12 electronics uh, story. So, so after electronics, uh, we uh, launched fashion, which was sort of, the next big uh, category and uh, it took us two, three years to sort of uh, become fairly large. Uh, in that, we ended up acquiring a company, uh, fashion, vertical fashion retailer, uh, retailing company called Mintra uh, at that time as well. 
and uh, fashion became one of our biggest categories and uh, one of our biggest differentiators along with logistics mm. uh, for the longest time uh, uh, especially versus amazon because amazon was sort of never really good at selling fashion uh, even in the us uh, and then amazon why why fashion because that so that is definitely like a new you know i would not have thought of that as a th- i would have thought it like I don't know, something matrimonials for you. That's education and matrimonials yeah. are like the two big spends or whatever in India, right? Yeah. So, so why, why, why fashion is a third no, thing? Fashion was a big and growing market uh, mm. in India. I mean, uh, as the economy was growing, people are spending a lot more on uh, these, uh, uh, on these categories. Uh, and uh, with, again, med- global media and uh, exposure and all that, I think uh, fashion, the fashion biz- uh fashion industry in India was growing uh, much, much faster than the overall retail uh, industry in India was growing. Uh, so fashion became, uh, uh, I think, a very important category for us. And we were also looking at China when we were doing a lot of this. So so we drew a lot more parallels, actually, to China e-commerce. Like JD? Yeah, like JD and Alibaba, than, yep. like T-Mall and JD and Alibaba, than to, uh, than to the U.S., because, because they're also in the US, the market structure exactly. In the yep. US, the market structure was very different. There were already established retailers and brands in the US, and uh, like building a fashion business in the US, I can see why it would be so hard because there was already a lot of established uh, players uh, in the market and strong brands uh, in the market. Whereas in India, I mean, it was uh, like Nike's business in India was like a hundred million dollars, like very very small wow. when we started fashion. So there were nobody was really established. Uh, everybody was looking to uh, figure out the right way to scale uh, and online uh, and we were seeing that fashion in China uh, online fashion in China was also taking off so uh, so that uh, gave us a lot of confidence and then fashion became a major major big sort of category and reason for uh, us to succeed and so so talk about that for a second for a long time I think India was copying China and China was copying the US I think Post 2020, I feel like that has somewhat changed where folks, you know, China's kind of on its own path and I feel India's also gotten a lot more confidence right. recently, right? But but tell us about that. So like aspects of the Chinese economy were things that Indian entrepreneurs look to. This is, you know, the pre-G times, you know, yeah. to, to some extent, right? So t- t- tell us about, about that. Yeah, I think there were more similarities between China and India uh, from an internet and e-commerce standpoint than the U.S. So... One, uh, as you said, I think China was also developing an economy obviously way ahead of India. But uh, if you look sort of 10 years back, it yes. was sort of in a similar position. So you could kind of correlate uh, and see where India could be. Uh, it's about 13 years, like 1978. And the cost yeah. structures uh, were pretty similar. So the margin structures, the cost structures, what, uh, what a delivery would cost, uh, what would it cost to make a delivery in India would be uh, sort of similar to, to China, whereas in the US it would be like uh, an order of three to five times uh, uh, more uh, than that. So so a lot of the models uh, uh, could be similar and uh, like there was a lot of cash on delivery in China as well in the early days. Uh, JD had to also do a lot of uh, cash on delivery uh, as well. So some of the inspiration and uh, models uh, we sort of looked at china and we used to like go to uh, uh, china almost every year every other year and uh, and meet uh, founders and companies 
there and try to sort of learn and see where uh, uh, what was applicable to to our business. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that was that was when China was more friendly and open for. I mean, people now forget this in twenty twenty three. Yeah, but, it was very different. It was just a totally different yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Geopolitical thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there's that. You know, for example, there's uh, probably put up a photo in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. Xi was taking smiling selfies with David Cameron of the UK. Yeah. Right. Xi was visiting the U.S. and going to where he was. He had he had done a thing in Iowa. Uh, like where he had been an exchange student, he went and visited like an American family in the mid 2010s. So there's a very, very different posture, like less than a decade ago, that people forget today because of you know all the geopolitical yeah. you know stuff. So um, yeah, so then yeah, so, so then Amazon uh, came in uh, uh, in India in 2013, started really investing heavily in 2014, 15, and uh, how do you think about them as competition? Oh, we took them very seriously. I mean, uh, so till Amazon came in, we did have some local competition, but we uh, never took them very seriously because uh, although they'd raised... Uh, uh, the Snap deal? Snap deal, yeah, and a couple of other vertical players, and they'd, they'd raised enough capital, they, but we could sort of see that uh, our customer experience was way more su- uh, superior. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we looked at them more tactically. Uh, tactfully, but Amazon obviously is the world's sort of most feared competitor. Sure. And uh, and uh, they were very serious about India. Uh, and we could also see they were serious from India from the top. I mean, Bezos was very serious about India. Mm. So he's announcing in his letters. He was and announcing stuff. it. He yeah. came down to India twice. So, so he's really backing it uh, mm. with his time and, <laughs> and, and money as yep. well. So. So we uh, we were taking them very uh, seriously. Uh, it was almost I wouldn't say an existential threat, but we knew that like we uh, it, they had your attention. Yeah, they had our <laughs> yeah. attention, and yeah. that we had to figure out our place in the market once they came. So and so it was, it took sort of uh, jostling for about a couple of years uh, between the two of us. Uh, uh, and then nothing. Uh, Where's uh, that now? I, what is like the relative yeah, after balance? After a lot of share. the jostling, the sort of shares settled somewhat like 60, 40, 60, us, 40, sort of Amazon. Hmm. And then uh, over the last, I think, few years, we have been gaining share pretty hmm. uh, pretty steadily uh, uh, now uh, after the acquisition, which speaks like, I think, uh, which speaks uh, to one the team that we have, uh, uh, team and the culture at Flipkart, and also I think the way Walmart has managed yep. the acquisition. That's uh, not easy to yeah. do. Yeah, it's very, I mean it's very very difficult. It's one yeah. of the hardest things to do is to manage a acquisition of the scale yep. and make it successful against the biggest competitor on <laughs> yep. on planet Earth. You get, so. You're getting two things that have been dancing in very different things to right. move in coordination. It's, yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. And so t- tell us about that. So basically, I mean the thing is that. Uh, one thing I wanted to actually ask you, well, first the acquisition, but like 2023, what are the best practices for getting money into and out of India? Like where do you incorporate all that type of stuff? Because like, is it gift city? But in 2018, before we even get to that, it was totally unheard of to have a multi-billion dollar, you know, US like acquisition in India, to my knowledge. Right? Yeah, yeah, there was nothing. There's, yeah, there's yeah. no, right? It, yeah. So, so first, like just the international complexity of the legal system, because India's legal system... <laughs> It's fairly complicated. Yeah. Uh, so just that alone was a big thing. And then having multiple bidders and so on. Tell us what you can say about that. Yeah. No, so yeah, so uh, so 2016-17, uh, we had, uh, I mean, 
we had this obviously battle going on with Amazon and uh, both uh, Amazon and Flipkart were scaling pretty rapidly with the geo sort of effect and uh, rising uh, consumer internet growth in uh, growth in India. And we were constantly in the process of raising money. I mean, we had just raised uh, uh, capital from uh, a consortium of uh, uh, internet companies, eBay, uh, Tencent, and uh, and then SoftBank in 2016 and uh, in 2017, and and we were in discussions uh, on and off with Walmart uh, since 2016. Uh, and think at that time Walmart was uh, very focused on its uh, turning out the U.S. business, and uh, but was looking at India in a very serious way. Mm. Uh, and so so we were uh, on and off in discussions, and by I think 2000. Late 17. Did Walmart have any presence in India? Then? Walmart had a small presence in India. They were in this, uh, they had a uh, B2B business where they del- uh, where they serviced the Indian Kirana stores, the mom and pop uh, retail stores uh, through their... Uh, but they weren't doing something like Amazon. But they were, oh, they were definitely not doing anything in e-commerce and they were not doing anything in... Uh, uh, in sort of physical retail because uh, it's not in India that is a restricted uh, uh, area and foreign companies are not allowed to do uh, right. So that was physical that, physical retail. So how did Amazon manage to do that? Oh, because Walmart, of course, starts with a physical plant, right. and physical stores. Yeah, Amazon marketplace could, business is allowed. Could al- get around that. So, I see. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, so yeah. So uh, so Walmart was had a small presence. Walmart had uh, tried uh, retail with along with a partner mm. before. So Walmart. Uh, did have history uh, in India, but, but McDonald's and other things are allowed to operate. Food in, is sort food of allowed. Food yeah. is allowed. Food is, Retail food is, is not. different. Retail. Is I different, see. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Uh, Why? Just like random regulation. Is there any logic to that? Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, retail is a huge industry, so retail is way more important. It's protected per, and to be protected. Food was very small. Like food, food industry in India, like uh, because, organized food industry was very, very small because people didn't smaller. eat out. Yeah, I see. Interesting. Uh, interesting. So there's there's a small shopkeeper, so retail was protected, but the small going out to eat actually is was relatively, very small. Yeah, that's a relatively modern thing, even in the U.S. Actually, by the way, like restaurant culture was you know in the 1950s, maybe you'd go to like a, a deli or you'd have like a truck stop, but it wasn't like all these fine restaurants of Thai and this and that food. Like yeah. restaurant culture is actually relatively new in the U.S., so yeah. it's probably at, like like very yeah. low there. Okay, so then we were dis- uh, in in discussions with Walmart, and uh, Walmart had. Uh, in China, also uh, done an investment into JD uh, mm-hmm. and was a large shareholder on the board of uh, JD.com. Uh, and they were looking in India to do a similar uh, sort of strategy. And they started talking to us. Uh, and as things sort of progressed, I think uh, they really probably liked uh, what they saw and the discussions uh, sort of. Uh, convert got converted into uh, more of an acquisition uh, discussion than an investment discussion mm. from their side, and uh, I think for them they really wanted to take a big bet on a few markets. Right. I think in hindsight I can see that now because after the India acquisition, uh, Flipkart acquisition, they ended up uh, sort of selling most of uh, their businesses in other markets. Uh, hmm. Even the really? U- even in the UK they sold their business to wow. a local entrepreneur and they. Partly own it, but they don't run it. 
So they just, they're, they're just like they're just like U.S., China, India. Yeah. So they're like U.S., China, India. I think Canada and Mexico are also big. So so like it's uh, hmm. the Americas and then China and interesting and uh, and India. So so I think with that sort of focus, they wanted to then obviously take a big bet, which is clear. Uh, I think I can see in hindsight. And uh, uh, so that discussion started. Then obviously, I mean Amazon was also. Uh, in India, in a, in a major way, and was also part of the discussion. But we ended up uh, uh, sort of uh, partnering with Walmart uh, for that. And, and at that time, it was and that was I like think one of the biggest. It was the biggest, I think, e-commerce deal globally, uh, not just India. So I mean, yeah, if huge. you look at e-commerce, it was the biggest e-com deal at that time globally. And in India, it was, I think, the biggest. M&A deal again uh, till that time I mean across all sectors like not just yep. internet or commerce like it was the biggest sort of yeah I mean uh, it's the scale of WhatsApp I mean WhatsApp is the only thing that I can yeah, remember yeah WhatsApp was, was like 20 billion right? yeah, yeah it was in so, that it was in that ballpark right, yeah um, and that's actually interesting also because WhatsApp is also an international yeah. growth story of a different kind a di- yeah, yeah, yeah but so that really I think put India uh, and India tech on the on the map globally in the, uh, and I think after that uh, the amount of capital which has come in after 2018 uh, into Indian tech, uh, and not just Indian consumer tech, like right. now there's a big uh, part of the Indian ecosystem which builds for the uh, for the world. Uh, SaaS is a big uh, software service is a big area uh, as well where uh, there are quite a few unicorns now, uh, and a lot of uh, money has flown into that side as well. Mm-hmm. And um, the actually India is now number three in unicorns globally. Uh, right less, after less yeah after yep. US and China yeah yep which also happened pretty fast. Um, and uh, you know so what's interesting is it, the the whole the whole story somewhat reminds me of Uber and Didi. Mm-hmm. Like Uber tried to kind of make inroads into China, um, and then it didn't, and then had to basically sell its stake to Didi or what have you. And so like this is a little different where. For Walmart to actually have, uh, you know, Amazon, I think, would have had a defensive buy, right, where then they just kind of lock up the whole market. Um, but I'm actually even surprised that they were allowed to bid because, you know, I would thought Indian regulators say, oh, it's anti-competitive or something like that, yeah. right? Now, I mean, maybe, uh, there maybe was you can't no, talk. I mean, since it was all private, there was no bidding or, like, there was, it sure. was all discussions. So, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It makes sense. So. So now, uh, you know, of course, like Indian markets continue to grow. Flipkart's a big part, like it's a jewel and, you know, the whole Walmart um, thing. But they only bought, they didn't buy 100%. Why did they only buy 77%? Was there some limit, like statutory limit? No, there was no limit uh, to it. I think their uh, strategy was to, I think it was a very smart thing to do. Uh, the strategy was... Keep some skin in the game? To Yeah, exactly. Keep uh, some skin in the game to still, like, uh, so to be uh, an owning shareholder, but to still run it like a venture capital-owned technology startup. I uh, see. So this right. way, by, by having some points, they could they could sell them to other investors at some point, and you know maybe the thing grows enough. Yeah. And they recruit I think even most yeah. more importantly from a talent perspective, yep. from a talent standpoint, it still uh, needed to sort of feel like you were working for Flipkart and not Walmart. That's interesting. Uh, so so that's actually very enlightened of them. I mean, I know that Walmart's had like a great data science thing and so on, but 
that's surprisingly enlightened. It's yeah. kind of like, you know, the YouTube acquisition by Google and they kind of allowed it to keep its own brand right. and a lot of its own, you know, offices and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. it was exactly similar. Actually, even beyond that, right? Because YouTube got 100% acquired and if you were an employee in YouTube, you got Google stock and, right. and um, maybe the culture was a little different, but I don't know. Uh, mostly similar, but if uh, but Flipkart is sort of a different company within mm. the Walmart ecosystem and has completely different culture, completely different compensation sort of policies, uh, and uh, employees in Flipkart have Flipkart stock, not Walmart stock, uh, so it is uh, mm. managed uh, uh, in exactly so for a, for an employee the experience really didn't change. Yeah, they're uh, sort of. Uh, leaders uh, and managers didn't change and uh, none of the policies changed for them. The culture so, didn't change. So it continues to be sort of that's uh, very the, same, the same thing. And that's been, I think, the I think 80% of the reason for that it's been the acquisition has been sort of pretty successful. Uh, and it's probably a good uh, case study uh, for such uh, for such acquisitions. That's really interesting. Yeah, for it's like when it's that big, you don't want to break what yeah. built it. You want and to kind of, I yeah. and actually I had sort of personal experience uh, doing this twice uh, in the Flipkart journey. Mm. So we bought as when I told you we bought this uh, fashion company called Mintra. Yeah, uh, and it was online fashion, right? I mean, Walmart buying an e-commerce company in India is is like two degrees removed because it's one. I mean, they don't know as much about India. Second, right. they, they were not the best in e-commerce, so. Uh, sort of being hands-off makes sense. We bought this company called Mintra, which was in e-commerce and fashion right. in India, right? Uh, but we kept it separate for Why did you do that? six, seven years. Uh, our reasons were a uh, bit similar and bit different. One was, again, it was clear to us, the reason we bought Mintra was because it was very different from Flipkart. The culture was very fashion first. Flipkart was very technology and logistics first. Uh, and uh, the customer segment uh, that Mintra was serving was much more premium and fashion forward, hmm. whereas Flipkart was trying to serve like uh, everyone and, in, and anyone in India. So, and the most important thing, uh, objective for the next five years for that company was to grow, right? It wasn't synergies were, and the costs were not the most important objective. The most important was uh, was growth. So, so keeping sort of this context in mind, we just kept it uh, completely separate. Uh, actually, the Flipkart and Flipkart fashion teams and Mintra teams almost competed and clashed hmm. <laughs> uh, quite regularly. Well, that's a tricky and, part, right? Yes. Exactly. And yeah. it was always like a conversation in in management meetings and sometimes on the board that, oh, why, why are your internal teams fighting and uh, and all of that? Uh, so it was interesting to manage that dynamic. But did it you, worked uh, did really, really, really well. It worked. So why didn't you just shut down like... Uh, you know, the fashion vertical on Flipkart and direct it all to Mintra. Oh, again, yeah. because it was so different. I mean, uh, the reason we bought Mintra was because Mintra was serving... High-end clothes. Yeah, so. fashion-forward sort of premium customer, uh, whereas Flipkart was serving... Uh, it's like a Walmart the whole kind of, Exactly, the Walmart yeah. sort of uh, kind of an experience mass where market. you're trying to serve mass market. Uh, so, but there so, is some overlap, and that was and there was the, a little bit of an overlap, yeah. so which you had to deal with. But these are different businesses, yep, uh, and had to be managed uh, with a very different rhythm and a very different culture. It's interesting because you know I remember I'm not sure if this is still true, but I do remember the 2000 people would say, uh, "Oh, McDonald's owns Chipotle," and I think they just had like a large stake in it or something mm -hmm. like that. But you know I believe like 
uh, one way of thinking about it, it's almost the same company, the reason they have these different brands is those brands just stand for something and they can't stand for everything. And that's why like, it's almost like a different user interface. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we did the same with the, the payments business, PhonePay, where we acquired this like 20 people, 10, 20 people company uh, very early on. And we just kept them completely separate in a different office. And we acted like like what Walmart did, uh, is doing with Flipkart. We acted like almost like a VC owner mm -hmm. uh, with them. And uh, we just gave them sort of the capital and the steady support required. And we just let them sort of, again, build their own uh, company with their own policies and with their own HR, with own sort of... Uh, uh, and even, own even, culture. even when they were a small company, I mean, this is something I've also seen, like Instagram is like 13 people when Facebook bought it. I mean, it's right. much bigger now, but there's an interesting aspect where sometimes a company or a government that's like the U.S. is 300 million people and Singapore is like seven, seven million, eight million people. But Singapore still, a, you know, the, the, the prime minister is still a head of state and gets a state visit. And so they still interact with them as like CEO to right. CEO, right? Similarly, like Zuck and Instagram or Zuck and WhatsApp, when they were acquired, even though it was a much smaller company, Instagram's like 13 people, WhatsApp's like 55 people. Yeah. He still, and, and Facebook was this giant Goliath, interact with them as CEO to CEO and respected that kind of internal boundary because he knew that there was a formula that made it work. It wasn't about absolute size. It was yeah. about like execution given that, right? Yeah. And it was about potential size, right? I mean, future right. size. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, so I think that, Playbook made a lot of sense. And when we were discussing with Walmart, I think that sort of continued playbook, uh, we uh, uh, we saw that Walmart was also was thinking of the same playbook. What was the relative scale when you guys were acquired? Uh, scale off? Yeah, like how many people did Walmart have? How many people did you guys have? Oh, really? I don't know how many people Walmart would have, like hundreds of thousands of people. I think Flipkart had about 25, 30,000 people. Oh, that's still pretty big, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Flipkart was pretty big. Because yeah. you had all the logistics people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's including all the drivers. Oh, no, so, including no. drivers and all, it would be probably 100,000 uh, people. Wow. That's, yeah. So you were managing like a, I mean, so, okay, now this takes us from Flipkart to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, right? So the, um, I mean, you were essentially managing something that it was on the scale of a small country, right? Right. That's say, you know, I've got this graph we'll probably put on screen, which is uh, there's a, um, uh, there's 12 countries in the UN that have less than 100,000 people, mm -hmm. right? There's another 26 that have between like, uh, you know, 100,000 to like a million. And there's like another 60 something that have between a million to 10 million. I may be slightly off, but that's where I kind of remember the numbers. We can put it on the screen. And so, I mean, essentially those 100,000 people folded up to you. Right. Right. And so you cannot give, I mean, with that being a small country, you could not possibly give instructions to every person, right? You might be able to have one-on-ones with, I don't know, 10 executives, right. right? And maybe you knew the names of 150, maybe even 1,000 people within the thing, right? How did you manage this gigantic thing, right? Because it all folded into you. Ultimately, they would right. have to kind of listen to you. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I think we learned very early on that uh, the only way to scale uh, uh, the business and to manage uh, the complexity was to have really great leaders, uh, in the company, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think uh, our first two sort of hires uh, uh, in the company uh, became like very core sort of leaders. Uh, the first one was Sujit, who 
who was our head of operations and sort of business development. Second was uh, Mekin, who was our first CTO. And they sort of became part of the core leadership team along with me and Sachin. And like it became like a four people sort of leadership group. And then, I mean, we they ended up hiring more people. So it, uh, uh, it expanded over time. Uh, but I think that kind of stuck with us, that first experience of getting these two guys in and uh, being able to uh, scale the business, being able to scale the number of people we could manage. Uh, I think it became sort of a formula for us. So, and at that time, I think the, so ta- part- the talent story is also interesting because yeah. in India, I mean, to build e-commerce, uh, you needed a lot of different types of talent. So an e-commerce company is like five companies in one. It's not like one company. Why, mm. why I say that? Because it, so, so it's an internet company. You have to, you have to uh, know how to do digital marketing. You have to get a, u- users. You have to have a web interface, mobile interface. So anything which a normal internet company would do. So that's one. You need to, you are a re- retail company uh, where you need to ma- manage sellers and you need to manage pricing and merchandising uh, and what sells and what doesn't sell. Then you need to be a logistics company uh, as well, because in India we had to deliver packages, so we had, a, we had to be a logistics company. We also had to be a customer su- su- support company, so we had like thousands of people working in, uh, in customer support, uh, answering uh, queries for sellers and customers and whatnot. So, so you have to be like many companies. And what was the fifth? So there's, there's yeah, website, logistics, one. sellers, customer service. Ye- yeah, let's say four. Let's say it's four. Yeah. Okay, still, so four still is still, big, yeah. <laughs> it's not one. So. Sure, sure. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, in India, the talent for uh, most of the these things to do this at scale was like almost zero. I mean, the only good talent uh, which existed was probably technology uh, because of companies, as I said, like Yahoo and Google and Microsoft. Did you have the cetera. call centers and stuff, though, didn't you? Did some we had call, yeah. So call centers, uh, call okay. centers existed, but they were mostly serving U.S. customers. Uh, so again, building something which could serve Indian customers at that cost sort of point was again a little bit of a different ball game. Yeah. Now, now, they, now they could actually use. They could call themselves by the Indian name right. rather than <laughs> uh, rather than Sarah yeah. on the phone or whatever, you know, yeah. right? It's Saraswati. Yeah. So, logist, okay. so so retailing, as I said, was not a big uh, industry in India. So retailing talent was really not non-existent. Then uh, you you didn't have logistics talent. Logistic, there were so, no large logistics companies. So, so just there was train everybody. N- exactly. Okay. There was no large digital. So that's the fifth business, education. Phil <laughs> Card University. Yeah. So, oh, that's funny you say that. I was yeah. talking to one of my. Uh, one of the founders of a company called Echo, which is into, uh, uh, which is a tech uh, uh, digital insurance uh, company in India, and we were talking about edtech mm. and that uh, uh, and what's happening in edtech and all that. And he made this exact same comment that, oh, you know which which is the biggest edtech company in India? I was like, which one? I said, Baiju, no Flipkart. I'm yeah. Like, Why yeah. do you say that? He's like, I just hired my last three leaders. Uh, the last three leaders I've hired are all like Flipkart. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so that's the other thing in which you did for the ecosystem is like, you know, sort of like how early tech executives, many of them actually, Yahoo in its day was actually like a big deal, right? Google and it's, I mean, Google's still a big deal. A right. lot of people came from there. So there's a kind of DNA that yeah, you guys yeah. installed. That's really yeah, interesting. So, so what uh, happened in Flipkart was that uh, the DNA became sort of very, very entrepreneurial. So because the talent did not exist, yes. we had to hire a really... Uh, young, smart, raw talent uh, with very high potential, who? Uh, but who did not have experience, right? So all these people from 
uh, elite engineering colleges, BIRTs, IITs, uh, and management colleges, IIMs, and the other ones. Uh, we had to sort of bring them in and just throw them into the deep end. See, so, but how hard was that? Because in India, there wasn't an example of startup success. Right. You know, in the U.S., you know, people are, I mean, the people know that startups exist, but people are often cynical. Oh, my equity is worth nothing. It's yeah. like, right? So in India, without that track record, like recruiting these folks who are like, why should I work at the startup, which I've never heard of versus, I mean, maybe they'd heard of Flipkart by the yeah. time, right? But, but basically, you know, this has, seems to have higher risk than, you know, Google or right. what have you, right? So how, how, how did you yeah. think about So there that? are two parts of this story. I think one, the, I think there's a first part, which is before we built, before Flipkart became a consumer brand, before we did our advertising. And then there is after we became a consumer brand, right? So before we were a consumer brand, it was super hard. Mm. There was absolutely no models of success. Uh, people, uh, people wanted to work for uh, obviously more stable jobs in either in uh, these uh, global companies, uh, in their product and technology departments or for IT services companies. Uh, those those jobs were looked at uh, as much more stable and uh, uh, much more safe. I remember, like uh, uh, in 2009, we had uh, hired uh, three or four software engineers, and one of them didn't show up on the date he was supposed to show up. And we called him, and he said, "Sorry, I can't join." I said, "Why?" Is like, I mean, when I told my in-laws that. I'm joining uh, this company called Flipkart. They were like, why would you go and work for a bookseller uh, when, you, when you're working for this large uh, IT services company? It makes no sense. Uh, and uh, he just could not convince his mother-in-law. That's so funny. <laughs> well, she probably regrets that now. <laughs> At the yeah. Time. Yeah. So that was the culture, right? I mean, that's where, uh, that's what we were sort of, so we had to get uh, a lot of uh, these, uh, I think before Flipkart, became a consumer brand it was really very passionate people who wanted to atypical personalities uh, yeah atypical personalities who wanted to build uh, uh, the biggest sort of uh, consumer brand uh, uh, consumer internet brand in india like that people with that passion it was i think great self selection because uh, we didn't need a lot of people so so if you could sort of still tip somebody over with that passion that was absolutely the right person to have uh, so that uh, happened before but after we became a brand, it became much easier because then you were joining a company which was probably going to make, probably going to be uh, one of the large success stories. It was, uh, it was going to be a consumer brand, which was, I mean, it was really sexy to work with one of the biggest upcoming consumer brands in India and be part of the journey. So I think the USP for talent became a little easier after we became uh, a consumer brand. It helped uh, not just with customer acquisition, but right. with talent acquisition. And by that time, we had raised uh, a lot of money as well from like yep. global venture invest, global uh, uh, venture investors. So, so I think this uh, it became a little bit easier to take that risk. Uh, Got it. So, so basically, it's something where your brand advertising, the outside investment, boosts your brand not just among consumers yeah. but also with the recruits. And for any yep. anybody, I mean, at that time, for anybody in India who had sort of the passion to uh, build uh, for the Indian ecosystem and build at scale, like Flipkart was the place to be. So, so that's also interesting because the WhatsApp acquisition was kind of surprising in the US because so much of its energy was global. Right. And everyone's like, WhatsApp, what's that? Now, <laughs> now of course, people kind of know WhatsApp or what have you, but at the, the scale of the acquisition, the amount of money and the relative unknownness of it yeah. was, I remember it was a huge shock in the American tech ecosystem. 
But with India, Flipkart was basically the, you know, the the best known tech company right. by by a certain point by the early 2010s or thereabouts. So then it became something by 2012 13. 2012 13. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. So it was it was the foundation stone of right. kind of the space. Yeah. So now, it changed. Yeah. Now, one question I have for you is like, you know, if we look at like the American tech ecosystem, it built out a certain way. You know, there was first it was Microsoft and Apple and then it was Google and, uh, you know, Amazon and then Facebook and then, you know, like Uber and Airbnb. And in, in China, it's like, a, you know, the Galapagos Islands where mm -hmm. the, the animals are all just different. Right. Or, or uh, there's this place called Socotra, this island in like uh, it's like near Yemen where they've got trees and species that are like nothing else. Nothing else yeah. Right. So the ecosystem is different. It's like air gap from the rest of the world. Mm. So China has this ecosystem where, for example, like Meituan, the Chinese Groupon is much more successful than the American Groupon. Right. right? That is an analogy of it. But like imagine if Groupon had become a multi, multi-billion dollar company, right? So, you know, or WeChat, you know, the the chat interface, the entire society, just it's just like grown differently, right? So if you think of India as like a third ecosystem like that, it also has certain Galapagos Islands aspects to it, where it, it grew similarly, it grew differently. Like its flagship company was uh, like an Amazon equivalent. Right. I mean, Flipkart was like, yes. you know, an Amazon cognate early on. What things are kind of the same and what are different in your view, kind of having seen the Indian tech ecosystem yeah. build out, like versus the American? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, India was somewhere in the middle uh, of China and, and, and the US yep. because, I mean, uh, language is the same and uh, uh, sort of culture would be somewhere in the middle as well. So uh, it kind of, uh, it used, uh, I would say learnings from both both yep. the sides, right? And kind of ended somewhere in the middle. So it's early days. I mean, it was obviously a lot more like the US. So uh, Flipkart, uh, e-commerce, uh, ride hailing with uh, Ola uh, and stuff, I think was very similar. And I think food delivery is probably more similar to China with like... Uh, mm. uh, Why? With Swiggy and, and Zomato. Again, because of cost structures and... And what is the difference for the American audience? What's the difference to India and China? I think like India is again uh, a lot of most of the deliveries are on uh, uh, on motorbikes and and, and two wheelers versus like I think US would be mostly uh, still to cars and much higher sort of cost of delivery, right? Uh, so so that way I'm much more similar to uh, similar to China. There's uh, but I think only in the I think it only in the last. Two three years, we are sort of seeing uh, newer models sort of emerge, uh, which are uh, very sort of India specific. Now that there are more than a half a billion people with mobile internet uh, access, so it's a large enough market to really build India first uh, type of products. And uh, UPI is a great example of that, like phone pay and uh, the way. Uh, some of the fin, uh, uh, fintech companies uh, are coming up uh, very unique, uh, definitely, uh, than what's happened uh, uh, in, uh, in these markets. There's uh, this company, InsureTech company, I'm an investor in called Aco, which is, uh, I think, which is probably a, a model which is uh, getting success in India, but I think in the US, uh, quite a few companies tried it. A few of them went public as well. Mm. Uh, but uh, What's I think the model? It, it hasn't really uh, helped. So again, digital uh, sort of 
so in india a lot of the insurance is sold through agents mm-hmm. uh, so somebody sits in the middle like a uh, solo entrepreneur sits sort of in the middle of you and the insurance company and is a big part of the transaction just distribute agents and yeah so one is that and then uh, also on uh, the delivery side of let's say i mean you bought auto insurance and something sort of goes wrong with your car then the insurance experience is also uh, over an app and digital and like at click of a button versus uh, going sort of uh, through people and uh, and being inefficient so it's sort of leveraging technology and digital uh infrastructure and 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 both the sales side side well, and uh, delivery side well so so on that point like you know some of the earlier internet things that worked in india were like baiju which you've mentioned which you know for you know american viewers or western viewers i don't know it's like a uh multi billion dollar indian education startup right. um also shadi which was like a matrimonials right so like education and matrimonials those are the things that indians do pay right. money for they value culturally right so the demand even on a small base was there and so things kind of built out like you know the first kinds of things that happened right um and uh you know the so those are things that were i think distinct in the indian marketplace that were perhaps relatively bigger probably proportionately than they were in the us right right um the other thing that i've thought a lot about I'd love to get your take on this is you know i think india is okay as a market but it's not uh, i think it's going to be more about digital production than consumption like you know all of the ai training data mm-hmm. a lot of that type of stuff you know the digital assembly line with a billion indians right. on mobile phones doing a lot of that kind of micro task type yeah, work yeah, yeah. feels to me like it's going to be a big thing india is a nation of content creators in english which is a totally different thing than china right because right. china creates con- is a massive ecosystem but it's only for its domestic right. you know kind of market right india is the biggest you know aspect of india it's not just on the internet it speaks english and it's almost like you know, you know nafta you know nafta is no nafta north american free trade union uh-huh. right so it's like canada us mexico right, right? Right, right. in a sense there's now been formed though people don't see it yet a gigantic indo-european union mm-hmm. right or indo-american indo-western union of all of these english speakers on this gigantic right. global internet yeah. and all these bonds are being created very quickly yeah. that are not visible it's as yeah. if like the continents have sort of docked yeah, yeah, near yeah, each yeah, other yeah, right yeah. and so this is the source of a lot yeah. of digital labor right. a lot of i think you know telemedicine or, or what have you happens here or oh, many things right? i think it's yeah. interesting you say that so <clears throat> i think uh, the uh two or three sort of trends here right mm. one is as you say uh a lot of english speaking uh, a big english speaking population uh, probably the it's going to be the biggest english speaking internet population uh, in uh, very very soon uh, very young population so i think in a few years 25% of 25% of the world's workforce yep. is going to be in india right and with uh, covid and with remote and uh, what's happened in the last two three years uh, especially uh, anyone sitting in a tier 3 tier 4 town in india today can sort of uh, be working on for any company sitting anywhere in the world and any any uh, and this company can be any uh, size or shape right so it can be a one person company to it can be like the ibm or uh, walmart of the of the world so so explain that by the way for the viewers so like kunal um indian investor has this concept of like india 1 india 2 india 3 do you want to talk about that people may not know about that 
Yeah, so, I mean, India's obviously 1.3, 1.4 billion uh, people. So there is this, uh, this sort of India one, which is more like, uh, which behaves and acts and has access to uh, uh, to money and to products and uh, uh, technology like anybody living in the West would have. And uh, that's how many people? And that's maybe, uh, I think, not more than 50 million, like 20, somewhere between 20 to 50. Uh, okay. So like a European country, basically. Like a European, yeah. Which is still pretty big. It's yeah, like, it's, it's like France, big. Yeah, France yeah, 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 or the yeah. UK or something Correct. like that, right? Yep. And then there is this India too, it, which is... That might be a little larger than that, but, but in that ballpark. Right, magnitude, in that ballpark. Right. Yep. And then there's India too, which is sort of at the middle and, and emerging and uh, has high aspirations, is, has all the, uh, has access to all the digital content, knows all the brands, but probably does not have enough money to sort of do, uh, to buy everything and do everything today, uh, but uh, is educated and, and has a lot of potential to sort of uh, get connected into the global economy. And then there's the India 3, which is probably in, uh, in rural and tier four uh, cities, which, which still is starting to get, get access uh, digitally and uh, probably comes into uh, comes into the mainstream or India too, maybe in, uh, in, in a few years. So, so it's like roughly what, like 200 million in the second category and like a billion in the third or something like that? Is that? Maybe more. I think maybe, I mean, if you count households, then maybe it's like more than 100 million the first one, then four, four, five, three, four hundred million at least in the second. And then uh, maybe uh, uh, half a billion or more uh, in the third. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to actually like literally track that over time. Like once you've established those numerical measures, because right. you should see, because, you know, for example, uh, there's a lot of infrastructure numbers. We'll put these up. Like I actually tweeted something the other day that just showed the Im incredible growth in, uh, you know, public toilet infrastructure, in electricity, airports, roads, all that type of stuff. Like the growth in India on infra has become incredible. Yeah. And actually, uh, you know, the prime minister Modi retweeted that, right? And um, so something like that for this, where you'd see folks moving from India 3 to India 2 and India 2 to India 1, if those numbers are kept absolute right. over time, yeah. right? And so it'd be great. I mean, maybe there's some graph, maybe we could find that yeah, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, but going back to your original point, yeah. so, so, a, lo so a, a lot of these people, especially let's say in India 2, living in like a tier 2, tier 3 town, which is uh, uh, 500,000 to sort of 2 million people, sort of a, uh, a town. Uh, that's today. funny, that's a town. Yeah. That's like a big city. I mean, in, a city, in, yeah, tier 2, tier 3 yeah. city in India, uh, which is not like the top five which you hear uh, mostly about. Right, like it's a, not uh, Delhi or Delhi, China. Mumbai, yeah, or sure. uh, sit, sitting in this town uh, is today sort of, uh, is equally aware, equally sort of educated, equally has sort of equal uh, talent. Uh, to to anybody from these top five cities and can be working for I mean anyone uh, uh, sitting in that uh, town uh, sitting in town city can be working for anybody across the globe mm -hmm. uh, right and maybe not today but definitely tomorrow right yep. so there is this whole potential and potential energy of these hundreds of millions of English speaking uh, people with a lot of potential talent uh, and uh, if you can sort of uh, if you can uh, 
uh, get them sort of uh, to work on uh, problems across uh, various disciplines and you can sort of train them uh, and today you can train people remotely which was again not yep remote is not yep. sort of the case even like two three four years back it's not uh, uh, something that uh, we could think about but i think a lot of those barriers got broken uh, in the last two three years yep. so, so i think it uh, i see sort of a lot of uh, shift uh, in the production side as you said and uh, i think it's going to be a very exciting place yeah i think like you know um one way i sort of think about it is if china if you look around the world and you say you know this this table or this, this shelf, probably a lot of these physical things were made in China, right? Or have right. an origin there, right? And I think in about 10 or 15 years, a very large fraction of the digital world will be made in whole or in part by Indians yeah. or in India. And so obviously there's software engineers, there's tech CEOs, but there's also lots of actually Indian digital artists and uh, graphic designers and, you know, all of the AI stuff on both senses of the term, both AI content creators and AI training and yeah. so on and so forth, a large chunk of digital value add. Cause that's just something Indians just get that culturally, right? right. Um, you know, I can stereotype Raleigh did here, <laughs> but basically there, there's something about it where, you know, just like less physical, more digital, you know, you call it spiritual or what have you. We're just, we're, we're good on the computer, right. right? Like Indians just naturally have a knack for the computer. And then what that also, I think, means in the medium term, so you funded Gray Orange, right? Well, actually, one of my friends, Ajay Roy, is also mm -hmm. oh, funded, yeah. right? So Indians are also, I mean, in terms of labor, right? I think in the medium term, robotics is, you know, I built a, you know, robotic, you know, clinical, you know, sequencing and, and genomics factory. There's Gray Orange. There's uh, Mithra Robotics. Right. Actually, diapers.com was also robotics. All those had Indian yeah. founders, right? So there's definitely something there. Uh, where there's quite a few Indian founders who are associated with robotics. And it feels like that turns labor into software. And so China's had a huge labor advantage for a long time. Their labor productivity has been higher. A lot of labor wants to move to India. And maybe the way that circle is squared is you just have a lot of robotics in India. Maybe you have, you have a thesis on that because you probably have, you saw a lot of the logistic stuff with, with Flipkart. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I think uh, it is... Uh, sort of already happening uh, a little bit as well that uh, as you said I mean, there is a lot of talent robotics talent and uh, 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 naturally in India and uh, it is it is being implied but on the other side I mean uh, labor is also pretty uh, cheap in India right so so I think there is some tailwind there is some headwind so yes I don't see it uh, happening ah, very, that's, a, very, that's a that's a good point actually very very quickly right. because uh entrepreneurs business owners can always sort of uh throw people at the problem yep uh, as well so and you can still, employ people for a while still make yep. it work till that's a certain a scale so uh i think managing uh, really large scale with quality is where it's sort of starting to happen definitely in our business like in e-commerce and uh, like the and, little so, and and large manufacturing i think there's a, there's a lot of India is a big uh, auto manufacturing uh, uh, hub as well. So, so there is automation coming in in a big way. Uh, one you of know my, one of my friends runs sort of this uh, uh, electric uh, two-wheeler company called Ola, mm -hmm. uh, Ola Electric. And uh, he's built this new factory uh, near Bangalore uh, where I think it is... Uh, heavily heavily uh the whole line is heavily heavily automated uh, very much fewer people than i would have expected 
like five years back. Mm. Uh, so, so I think so it's starting, starting, starting to happen. Yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, basically, you know, like diapers.com has that, you know, famous videos of these Roomba like things, but they're big and they move around the factory and they move things around. So you're not, you're, you didn't do that yet at Flipkart, but, or you're starting to do that or, or how, how should I think about that? Starting to, yeah, starting to do that is uh, how but you don't need it. to because the labor is there. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 But I think that is, uh, it is going to become mainstream and definitely in the next five to 10 years. Got it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's not, um, yeah, it's a matter of five to 10 years. Okay, that's cool. And then, um, okay, so now uh, switch gears just for a second. We, now we're kind of talking about the future of India. You post Flipkart, um, you and I are investing in lots of stuff around the world. Tell us about like X to 10X and what you're doing there. It's not zero to one, it's right. X to 10X, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, Back, I made my first sort of angel investment back in 2000, I think 13, 12 or 13. Mm. Uh, and uh, I've been uh, investing uh, sort of ever since uh, uh, alongside sort of building Flipkart and uh, trying to sort of, uh, I mean, uh, because one, I mean, I was just very passionate about the entire startup ecosystem and also. Uh, I got a lot of energy from helping uh, uh, other entrepreneurs uh, as well. So by 2017-18, uh, the ecosystem had blossomed. There were uh, a lot of uh, uh, unicorns. There were uh, a lot of money pouring in into the ecosystem. Tiger, SoftBank, Naspers like, uh, were pouring a lot of money. Uh, into Indian startups and uh, geo uh, uh, sort of effect that also happened. So I could just see the entrepreneurial energy like growing mm -hmm. exponentially. And and then uh, I was probably mentoring like uh, probably talking to five to 10 entrepreneurs every month uh, on uh, sort of different issues that they, they would be having. And I started seeing a lot of patterns, especially with growth, uh, with entrepreneurs who had sort of uh, who were facing growth challenges, like who had mm. figured out a zero to one, who had built a good product. Uh, their business was scaling, but uh, they were sort of facing all these challenges of managing scale. Like how do you, uh, once you get to like 100, 150 people, how do you, uh, ex uh, how do you build an execution engine uh, where people are aligned and uh, how do you manage performance? Uh, how, do you, uh, uh, how do you create the right sort of ESOP policies? Like the nuts and bolts, uh, which need to come in. How do you manage customer experience at scale, operations yep. at scale? How do you build a brand? Uh, I mean, for consumer companies in India, that uh, that was also... And way better to get that from founders who've actually just oh, done that in India. Yeah, and right? they were all struggling because, they, they, uh, because uh, none of the uh, regular sort of models would apply, right? So India's laws are different. Certain conventions right. are different, right? Yeah. And... And there were some success stories, some sort of people been there, done that in India, uh, but not enough. And most of the people uh, who were, most of the successful entrepreneurs were still building their company. So they didn't have time, a lot of time yeah. to, to look, like give to other, uh, other founders. So that's when uh, I thought that uh, I can only help like five, 10 people at a time. Right. But this clearly will need to help like hundreds at a time very soon. So uh, like there should, 
I should institutionalize something like this. Like there the should be the next Flipkart University, <laughs> the next generation exactly. leaders. That's there, right. Yeah, there, there should be an an organization to do that to just make scaling easier. And and zero to one is a very different ball game. And then going from one to ten is a very different ball game. I, I had seen that. I mean, through my journey at Flipkart, through like journeys of these other, let's say, twenty thirty entrepreneurs mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, and I was pretty convinced that. uh there there could be many things which uh, which you could sort of help them on so so i got a couple of ex flipkart colleagues uh, who with whom i'd worked very closely to sort of come and partner with me on that and we started uh, this in 2019 uh 2018 or yeah 2018 and with a very simple mission that we will just basically we exist to make scaling easier uh scaling a company easier and uh, we started working with like three or four uh three or four uh, startups at that time uh, almost in a consulting mode like a, yep. uh, how a consulting company would sort of you make probably make that. an investment and then you help or something like no, that no no huh. no investment as well oh, so so it's sort of a very different animal i mean uh, it is ex- we wanted to keep the brand very founder and operating centric mm. not like keep it actually away from being look like an investor because okay, when the founder that's, that's is talking to an investor right? right the founder is posturing yeah yeah sure sure sure, so, sure sure right right you don't want you want to help the founder really improve their business you want you want him to tell everything that is wrong yes yes with the it, business you don't want the founder to be posturing be scared or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah well it's funny i mean i, I so at least what i found on this is as an angel right like you or i can write a check and we're kind of take it or leave it we're basically right. there you know we're we're there to help right, right? And so I find at least I get usually an honest. Oh yeah, as an angel, yes. yeah, exactly. So we right. wanted to keep that angel right. and that operate. So why angel not be seen as talent track? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You you're an angel and you're an operating angel, right? So, yep. So they'll sort of. Uh, it's a very different conversation versus an institutional VC. I mean, if you're talking to an Axel Sequoia, yeah, yeah, yeah Tiger, yeah. like it's a very different conversation. So we didn't. You're very clear that like the brand is not an Axel Tiger Sequoia. The brand yep. is very yeah angel. Like we're sort of. you are operating partners and uh, it's a team of people who've been there done that and uh, who understand the nuts and bolts of uh, building and operating versus investing mm-hmm. so so yeah so that's uh, that's what uh, we started building and so we just started working with 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 a few companies that let's try and help a uh, few of them in a consulting mode almost uh, not strategy consulting where you just tell them what to do but actually go and work with the teams and uh, and uh, Get get shit done. Uh, so we did that with uh, the team. So that that doesn't scale. Well, you just mentioned like exactly. being like being like a parachute in executive. Right, you right, have to right. really get detail. So this was just to get patterns, right? Yes. So, okay, got so it. So we worked with a few companies. Uh, the team worked with a few companies to get uh, those patterns in, and uh, then we figured out. Okay, uh, we defined these ten pillars for ten x for for success mm. uh, that uh, that we wanted to build and tools and services around. So so first one was like business design and strategy how to think about sort of big moves and strategy in a startup context uh then how do you uh, how do you do your org design and org structure so like what's the right org chart yeah, for yeah yep. for again uh linked to your uh strategy and business design then how do you operate uh uh what is your operating system okrs uh business uh, performance finance performance reviews, all performance reviews yep. uh how do you set that up uh when you reach 150 200 people and more uh, when everybody's not on the same floor 
Yep. Uh, how does communication work? Right. Then how do you manage customer experience at scale? Uh, then how do you do branding? If you if you're a consumer company, how do you think of the brand? Whether you need to invest in a brand? If you need to, then how do, how does that work? Because that's a complete. That is something which most founders have no idea. Of, yep. Uh, unless you come from that world, from a uh, world of brands, you you don't have much idea around that. How do you manage culture? Uh, and uh, culture at scale. How do you manage operations at scale? So, so again, very sort of uh, operating nuts and bolts uh, uh, of uh, of uh, of the business. And we uh, started defining sort of services and tools around these ten pillars, uh, and productizing uh, some of them and serviceifying some of them. Like some of them are products, some are some are services. Uh, for example, we just uh, uh, built uh, ops uh, an operating uh, operations practice where uh, there is uh, ops designer service. There is now an academy uh, for op- uh, operations leaders. Uh, we just launched a what's a, that called? Academy program for for ten X op- Academy or something. Yeah, so operations academy. Uh, uh, so there for so that is li- the latest one. We also, when uh, the first things we launched actually after working with this few startups was an academy program mm. for these 10 pillars. Like yep. these are the 10 pillars. And uh, we launched an academy program where, which was six months long. Uh, and the founders of uh, uh, eight company cohort uh, would sort of join the academy. And uh, these would be all series B sort of plus mm. founders, either 50 million to 200 million valuation and uh, there would be every other week we would sort of pick one of these topics and uh, discuss the topic among the founders with an expert either from X2DNX or from the uh, startup world coming and uh, and this talking in person? about it. This is all remote. This was all in person in the first two batches because that was pre-COVID. Well, that's okay because I mean that's actually a big ask because I mean your founder you're running like a scaling right. business and right. so on. So to come and kind of do in-person classes must have been a very yeah. like a significant commitment at that. Oh, time. it was yeah, yeah. exactly. It yeah. was a significant commitment of founders' time. And uh, if I look back, like first two batches, sixteen companies, I think almost ten are unicorns. Hmm. Uh, so it helped. So yeah. no one is. I mean, there was a lot of self-selection and right. help, right? So right. because founders who were really keen about uh, growing and learning, who were self-aware and who really wanted to sort of take their business to the next level, and 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 were clear where they that they need uh, uh, where they need help. I think uh, said okay, let, uh, we we will commit this much time. So it's like YC uh, outside. For, it was like YC for growth almost, companies. Almost like yeah. yeah, YC parallel for for growth companies. And uh, it worked, uh, the model worked pretty well. Hmm. And so, so now there's this Founders Academy where like 50 companies have now gone, gone through that. And we've worked with uh, 300 growth startups in India in various shapes and forms through these 10, 10 pillars. Some have sort of worked with us on like one, some have worked with us on five, some have gone through the academy. Uh, and now we have almost a program which you can almost call like co-founder as a service program where hmm. We bring, that's hard. That's hard to we do. Bring, yeah. yeah, that's not scalable. Yeah, but yeah, right. yeah, so we do it with only uh, a few companies at a time where like uh, now we have 100 people in the company and all these 10 different practices. So where like all these 10 practices sort of are available to you over the next two, three years. And uh, wherever are the biggest sort of challenges at this point, like those teams get involved. 
and uh, and work with the founders very closely and uh, and get uh, stuff sort of uh, either implemented or organized like let's say i mean you know the big one on that cfo yeah for any growth company like the organization of all the books and yeah. so on and so yeah, forth yeah, yeah, is yeah, yeah, like yeah. the big thing where it's really great to have someone who's done that there before right. and usually the tech founder doesn't have doesn't, experience yeah, in that yeah, right yeah. so that's something also uh, we are uh, in the process of building mm. Uh, the parachute CFO. in the CFO yeah, or the Series yeah, yeah. B, Series C company. A lot of them go off the right. rails because of that. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Um, so we've done a lot of work on the HR side, on the people side. A lot of people practices. Uh, how do you hire? How do you do ESOPs? How do you do performance? Uh, how do you, you gonna, do manage? How do you leadership training, management training? All of those. A lot of that stuff. How do you know your employees are happy? Culture. All of that. Are you putting that online? Uh, slowly, yeah. Because that seems like it'd be a great yeah, yeah, yeah. piece of content. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll RT it, we'll put it in the feed yes. when, when you're ready. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's, uh, so, uh, so as I said, we've worked with like more than 300 growth startups in mostly in India, a little bit in Middle East and Southeast, Southeast Asia as well through these uh, different sort of engagements. And, uh, and it's been quite fun and satisfying. I think uh, for me, it was really about uh, uh, how to a little bit give back, how to have a large sort of surface area of impact, uh, how to have fun. So I think all of these things come together mm -hmm. for me through through this uh, uh, engagement to X2DNX. So, so uh, I think that's how uh, I see my place in it. And uh, so... You're also, so, I mean, some of those are like um, SaaS and in those kinds of in the bread and butter. I mean, I, I don't mean to downplay that because it's important and it's difficult and so on. Yeah. But you're actually also interested in some of the hard tech type stuff or deep tech type stuff, which you don't have to do for the sake of doing it. Right. But you are doing, you are seeing some of that, right? T tell me, tell me about that. About the deep tech stuff. So I, yeah. You see, you see, I, you'd mentioned something along those lines, right? Like if, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was like... Um, you know, like stuff where 3D printing of organs, biotech, agritech, right? You know, you'd mentioned some yeah, of that. This, yeah, I don't, yeah, I, uh, I'm deeply, uh, I think, definitely interested in that, but uh, it's, not a, it's not something I do proactively. I think it is if, if I find something uh, of that sort and if I like the entrepreneurs uh, who are doing that, then uh, I'm definitely uh, interested. I think one of the, La latest ones was uh, this company building a, a ro uh, consumer robot to uh, to build in, uh, to uh, uh, to make Indian food. Hmm. Uh, so so that was pretty uh, home robot or like a, for for restaurants. Home robot, home robot, yeah, consumer home robot. So uh, so it can now make like uh, there's an Indian dish called poha and they can make pasta as well. And uh, Indian curries, uh, it can make Indian curries and hmm. uh, stuff like that. So, so that that sort of, so, uh, sort of thing has been uh, interesting. Uh, early on, we funded this company called Ather, uh, which is two uh, uh, electric two wheelers, hmm. and they are doing really really well. Uh, uh, now they're a unicorn uh, uh, as well. Uh, now in a big uh, big sort of uh, two wheeler brand in India. Uh, now, so they, that is probably one an, another example. Uh, then the three D printing one is yeah is very is uh, probably the most sort of moonshot. <laughs> what are you doing there? there? So th there the uh, 
the company has uh, built this technology to 3d print tissues and i think the first application they are they've been working on is uh, 3d printing the cornea uh, eye cornea mm. and in like for example in the us there are a lot of corneal diseases which are not big enough to sort of uh, for uh, large companies to sort of probably do research on and uh that's one area where if you can sort of 3d print uh, a cornea and do corneal replacement it obviously that's can huge, give vision yeah. to like way more many people than because corneal transplants are difficult to difficult to pull off because See, donors are not really available at the time you need the transplant so seems i mean I, there are folks who are working on that but that is definitely challenging because it's not just like plastic it's very very complicated tissue exactly like, right? yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and yeah again the point was that yes i mean i would completely i could completely imagine somebody in boston so uh or some place in the us working on something like this but somebody working in a small sort of office out of bangalore and uh, and uh, with the ability to sort of uh actually uh do uh something uh which works Well, it's often an Indian person in Boston doing that, right? <laughs> so, like, like a good chunk of American right. tech talent but, is in, but, right? But, but yes, again, but the uh, yeah, that's right. ability so, to get it done in India, of course, of course, right? That's right. Was just yeah, mind blowing. Uh, that's right for for me. And now they've been able to like hire exp uh, experts from uh, from the U.S. and they've sort of uh, they're building a lab in the U.S. Uh, now as we speak, so that they can do it faster. Uh, but it, I mean, it started in India. uh and for the first 3 4 years just they kept chipping away and uh, and then after the race like more money they've moved to the US. Huh, interesting. So but showing that you can actually at least get started right. in India that's right. So, you know, maybe the last thing and then you know, give you say whatever. so you know, we talked about how Flipkart is basically the size of not just I mean, not just a tiny country but a small country like bigger than a bunch of countries in the world. 100,000 people is actually like in, you know. Now it's much bigger. I think that's that probably 100,000 when we when Walmart bought it. Right, yeah, so it's like several bigger. hundred thousand, yeah. right? Okay. So now, you know, you would have a dashboard that is actually representative of the Indian economy at this point, right? Like right. A, a good chunk of just commerce happens right. through it, right? Um So, you know, how do you think about like the interface with policy? You know, you mentioned GST that actually simplified your life. Amazingly, in some ways at least, you know, UPI, GST, to some extent other perhaps. Right. Like, uh, you know, the government also made Reliance Geo it was feasible to do it. There's probably regulations that were cleared out of the way to yeah. allow all those towers to get set up. So, amazingly, the government is actually making your life easier not for in some ways, right? Um, how do you think about the interface between like Flipkart and like the state and so on? How, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, the interface is, uh, I think, now becoming relevant. I think till, like, even four or five years back, uh, we were sort of, I would say, re recipients of some of these uh, changes. Mm -hmm. And we sort of rode on them, but I guess... Uh, now you can influence some yeah, of them, Yeah, it right? wasn't uh, as big an industry to sort of influence uh, a lot of it. I think today with the... Uh, Uh, on the payment side and on the e-commerce side i think there is definitely uh, i think the size is big enough that there is uh, uh, i think fairly good interface uh, on a lot of these things and there are uh, various sort of different committees and uh, uh, and uh, organizations which which are working on various aspects 
so uh, in uh, where the interface is sort of matter. So, okay, so somebody who has contributed more economically to India than, than most, perhaps all, you know, maybe, right? Uh, but certainly in the very top echelons. What, are, what do you think is the top things India should do in terms of tech policy, specifically economic policy more broadly? What, what, what is next? What is a low-hanging fruit? What, which is the obvious thing that they should do? Oh, I think from my standpoint, I think uh, as we talked about this whole uh, piece around the talent, right? Uh, how do you leverage all of this potential talent in India at at scale? So, I think that is definitely one, and not uh, not just on the digital side, but even in manufacturing. So, I think how do we get uh, a lot of this talent uh, into sort of the uh, into like an organized economy and get them? I think a lot of that it is underemployed. So, how do you get them? to sort of full production, complete employment, whether digital production or physical. I think that's probably my biggest, uh, would be my biggest uh, wish list. Uh, Interesting. So, so explain that last bit. How do you get people to full employment from digital to physical production? To like, digital or physical. Ah, okay, got or, it. Got yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be digital, it could be physical. I think manufacturing is also a huge area, potential sort of area of opportunity. And there is uh, a lot, uh, which has happened in the last three, four years, a lot of uh, mobile phone production, a lot of electronics production is now happening uh, out of India. And I think with, again, the geopolitical sort of uh, headwinds on, on the China side, I think India can become a uh, good alternate mm. uh, on the manufacturing side uh, as well. Uh, so there is huge opportunity there. And then I think digital production... Uh, Indian sort of producing a lot of uh, digital goods uh, and uh, and working uh, remotely uh, on uh, uh, for businesses across the globe. I think is is also I think a huge huge area. Well, so I agree with all those. I I have three concepts which I'd like your reaction to. Um, I've written about like India's crypto policy and so on. I actually mm -hmm. still think a lot of that. Uh, will be important because otherwise India is subject to sanctions. It can be cut off. You know, the West has threatened cutting off India in various times. So that's important to just have its own sort of network yeah. for international transactions. But leaving that aside for now, um, I think, A, remittances and more generally corporate setup, right? So as somebody outside India, if you want to do business in India, what is the Delaware of India? Is it Gift City? Do, mm -hmm. you, do you incorporate in Gift City? Do you incorporate in Singapore and do business in India? Like, what is the best practice as of 2023? What should it be, right? For example, there's a LRS, liberalized remittance scheme to get right. like, money in and out, but it's like pretty hard still to get money yeah. in and out of India. You have to like give the birthplace of your ancestors on the forms and stuff for sending in like $25,000 or what have you, right? They've got these old banking forms still. And you as somebody who got $15 billion, $16 billion into India, has probably dealt with that more than maybe anybody yeah, else, yeah, yeah. right? So, so just on that first part, remittances and more generally corporate setup for international trade. How, what is the best practice? What should be the best practice? Yeah, I think gift city is more for uh, for funds and investors to sort of set up shop. I think it's the uh, uh, it's sort of an answer more to uh, to sort of uh, allow Indian managers to also manage foreign money and also to be able to invest globally. So, so far there right. was a AIF sort of regime where Indian 
fund managers could raise money globally, but uh, there was a restriction of only allowing 25% of the money to be invested outside India. Mm. So Gift City sort of allows Indian managers to become global fund managers. So I think that's more in um, that way and money obviously can flow from uh, anywhere into Gift City. So it's more for the fund manager for the, the operator. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still still a step forward yeah. potentially. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think for operators, uh, it has been, uh, uh, I think, I, I don't know if there's much of a change, uh, but uh, in general, I mean, it's not, obviously, India is not the easiest place yeah. to do business. I right. think with this whole, uh, I think, uh, India stack and uh, digitization of even the government services, I think it is improving a lot. Uh, there's uh, definitely a lot more to do, uh, but... I think remit, if you come to remit, remittances uh, for businesses, it's not as difficult. But for, I think, indi- individuals, is more difficult because of capital controls. I think it's got to do more with control rather than, rather than efficiency. I think, uh, I think uh, uh, efficiency is not the challenge. The challenge there is more sort of India wants to definitely control how much money goes out because uh, it, it is uh, still not very uh, sort of, did you find that an Which, issue when uh, operating? No, so, so that's what I'm saying. So for, for businesses, businesses okay. it's not a. It's, okay. it's it's not. It used to be an issue like 20 years back. Okay, but by the it's, time you guys yeah, got it's on, it's not an issue at all. For it doesn't come in the way of doing business at all. So is the answer then just incorporate as a business and just do it like that rather than an individual? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I okay. think it is. Yeah. Uh, like like for example, in the U.S., people will set up a consultancy, they'll set up a personal company, right. and you know if you're a plumber or something, you'll book business through that, right? right. So maybe the answer is. You know the Jay Z line become a business common. Yeah, 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 something yeah. to look at. I'm not. And aware, there is, you know, yeah, I think there is. Uh, now that you can also form LLCs in India, which is uh, which was not possible even three four years back. Mm-hmm. Limited liability sort of partnerships. Lightweight LLCs, LLCs yeah. yeah, yeah, have also been made possible. So there is there is, uh, I think, progress uh, on the corporate side, uh, corporate law side as well. Okay, so that's remittances, Gift City. Number two, a big one is um, that I've tweeted about a bit, but visas, right? Mm-hmm. If, you know, like the West has a lot of asks from India for, you know, foreign policy and so on, wants to be a bolster versus China, all this stuff. So, um, you know, one thing, one point I've made, love to hear your take on this is just like the visa situation for Indians, forget about just permanent immigration, just for business travel, for tourist travel, for attending a conference for someone's keynote speaker, for bringing a remote engineer in for an offsite. And also actually conversely, India sometimes makes it a hassle for some countries for people to get into India, right? right? Like that seems like an obvious target where, you know, for example, this recent deal where, uh, you know, a bunch of airplanes were bought from the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Biden is saying it's going to create a million jobs in the U.S. Well, okay, those airplanes are air India airplanes. It's going to be flying people out of India. How are they going to get into the country if they don't have a visa, right? So this seems like an obvious thing for the U.S. to lean on countries mm-hmm. and say, you know, and India to also make this ask and put it at the top of the, right. the, you know, the chart, which is get us a very large number of business and tourist visas for every Western company, every Western country that wants India to do something, Help us help you, right? Yeah. Uh, and it seems like you know that that leads to talent, especially given you know a good chunk of engineering talent in American universities, as you're aware, was Chinese and Indian. Right now, like it's like a plane with like one of those engines is just conking out mm. because a lot of Chinese engineering talent is not allowed to come, or you know both both on the Chinese side and the American side. So a lot of Indian talent will have to kind of surge to replace that. Right. And so there's a lot of reasons why. I think visas are a big thing. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. probably speaking to the choir here, but yeah, you've, you've experienced Oh, absolutely. This. I yeah. think that 
that's sort of part of the 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 i think the talent uh, vision uh, that i was talking about that i think at the highest end of it i mean a lot of that talent can actually get visas and and go and work uh, in these markets or, uh, sort of directly as well and add a lot more value right uh, so i think uh, and visas is definitely like a huge huge bottleneck yep uh, today and not just work i think even yeah as you said tourist and i mean as india is sort of growing as an economy there is a lot more people uh, wanting to travel and uh, uh, and aspiring to do that uh and uh, it is very it is difficult uh, i think uh, visa is definitely i think globally yeah i think this this definitely i think something they're working on but yeah it needs I, i'm yeah. i'm a big fan of some of uh you know minister jay shankar's videos uh and yeah. uh, if he if he sees this please <laughs> put visas at the top yes. you'll get a lot of retweets and likes <laughs> a lot of people will, will focus on this and actually within the us you know, Joe Lonsdale is a VC mm-hmm. friend of mine, wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about opening up visas. Noah Smith, also a friend. Is, I think there is a significant coalition of folks from the foreign policy side, yeah. from tech CEOs, from folks within India and so on to do something here about this and vault the Indian passport from where it is to at least like a decent mid-level. And again, I'm not saying of the billion Indians, all of them, you know, go and move to all these countries permanently. But like 90-day business visas should not take... Uh, you know, like years and yeah, years and yeah, years yeah. to approve, you know, in my view. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's something I think we probably both agree on. So the remittances and, and visas. And the third is kind of an interesting one, which is IP. Okay, mm-hmm. so India's drug industry, generic drugs, is phenomenal because India takes a less restrictive view right. of IP than the West does on this. And that's why India can produce, you know, it has this very sophisticated generics industry. It was able to build a vaccine in India. It has the biochemistry and molecular biology talent to do the stuff, genetics, all this type of stuff, right? And so one thing I've thought a lot about is in the age of AI, I think there's gonna be, uh, you know, we're very early, right? But there's gonna be, I think, three clusters. There's um, the, the current centralized American cluster where mm-hmm. they're licensing all of the stuff, right? And then there's gonna be the Chinese cluster where you know they're just, they just gotta have access to WeChat, they just pull all the data. But I think that a lot of the most interesting things to train on for an AI are like every Hollywood movie or every book, right? Every piece of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots and lots of content that you want to train on right is something which in the US has these extreme and insane copyright restrictions, right? It is possible- Even to train. Well, for all kinds of things. For example, Google Books, there's this whole thing where Google is showing snippets of the books, there's this whole thing. And so now like, you know, Getty has hit stable diffusion with this massive lawsuit. Mm, I saw that yesterday. Exactly, right? So there is this counter reaction within the US, within the West, of all these white collar jobs, whether it's, and this also within medicine, Mm -hmm. for example, you know, if an AI doctor is better, oh my God, is that gonna take a lot of jobs, right? AI is maybe better at writing than many journalists. Is that gonna take jobs? How about AI art, Uh, AI videos and movies, AI music, right? AI books, like not everything, certainly, but for many different white collar industries Mm -hmm. within the West, AI is quote threatening jobs. And so it'll be, you know, now you can make the argument that it'll uh, make the folks who are good at these jobs even better. That's certainly true for, for example, engineers or for designers. Mm -hmm. We are okay with AI improving our, our workflow, AI in Notion, AI in Replit, AI in GitHub, yeah. we're already doing that, that's great, that's gonna work, that's gonna happen, I, I'm pretty bullish on that. AI in industries that are not used to using AI, 
they're probably going to fight it in the West. I think there's a massive, massive opportunity for India to build something like its generic drugs industry. Let's call it its generic AI yeah, industry. industry. Yeah, that's okay. a weird talk. Right, where everything from LibGen to SciHub to you know all the academic papers just say that copyright is like one year or six months in India. India is not going to enforce copyright mm -hmm. on these things, right? Uh, and just like drugs, it's just simply not going to enforce those laws. It thinks that you know whatever you know every every time copyright's about to expire on Mickey Mouse, for example, Disney goes and like gets it renewed for everything, right? Yeah. This is like sort of corporate capture of copyright in the, in America. India is a large enough economy, and it can see a massive benefit out of this to just sort of liberalize all of this IP stuff and become a third huge cluster for AI, not the licensed Western side, not the Chinese controlled side, but the more freewheeling side, just like its generic drug industry, which contributes an enormous chunk to GDP and to, and frankly, national security, right? right? So I think that's a third cluster potential. That's a policy ask potentially we could do. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about it from that uh, sort of analogy and perspective, but yeah, I can, I mean, my head is already spinning with the possibilities of <laughs> what it could be. Uh, especially, I think, if you think about 10 years from now, most, a lot of jobs uh, are going to be AI plus that job, right? If, you do, if you're not using AI yes. in that job, uh, it's pro you're probably not going to be a very relevant uh, person in, uh, in the job. And uh, I think, in, as you're saying, I think India can use that sort of as a superpower. That's right. Yeah. That's the next leapfrog. Yeah. Right? To leapfrog. Yeah. Where, where others are stuck. They're stuck because the white collar job, yeah. the, the entire the entire concept of the US medical system, they want everything to go through a human for a billing right. event, right? Everything must go through a lawyer yeah, yeah. for a billing event and so on, right? But we could- So other regimes which are sort of stuck and won't budge uh, very easily uh, with these uh, sort of old uh, regulations. I exactly. Think in India can be, uh, they and, can take a very leapfrogging approach. And because it's greenfield, we don't, you know, the conventions, the laws, Correct. everything can be written. You know, for example, maybe it's something where you have, uh, like, teleradiology. You know, you get the images, you go and do them remotely. There are, obviously, Indian lawyers, Indian doctors, um, Indian, actually, uh, less well-known, illustrators. You know the movie Tenet? Mm -hmm. Right. So if you go and look at the end of Tenet, yeah. right, the credits yeah. looks like a New Delhi phone book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's you know all these Indian names, right? Yeah. And and the reason is that um, a lot of illustration is being happening been in India, happening right? Like a lot of the cell yeah, yeah, animation yeah, right, stuff, right, 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 for, right? For many years, and now it's graphic design yeah. and so on. So what's interesting is there's a lot of the talent in India for graphic design, illustration, copy editing. A lot right. of white collar talent is there. Yeah. And then with AI, they could potentially leapfrog. Because these industries, and, and then you have like the Indian American or Indian immigrant bridge. For example, you have like a licensed American MD who um, can have, a, you know, 100 uh, Indians who are helping scale teleradiology. Right. So you have enough of the license here where they're doing the final review of it, right? So you're still forward But assisted by this. Exactly. Sort of India stack of. India talent stack. That's right. <laughs> and, and this is actually, now the thing is, uh, white collar people will look at this and be like, oh my God, that's so bad, Balch. But actually, this is how you hyper deflate medical costs, yeah. legal costs. Yeah. All that type of stuff is just wildly expensive and, in the US. Yeah, Educational yeah. costs. These things are like wildly, wildly, Correct. wildly expensive. Yeah. And that's because you get all these billing events that are just baked into it. People call this so-called so Baumol's cost disease, if you heard that term. No. And it's supposed to be this, oh, it's just those sectors that have a lot of labor yeah, and the cost yeah, of labor yeah, goes up. Yeah. And It's well, just inefficiencies. Yeah, it's inefficiencies. It's systematic inefficiencies. Yeah. That's right. It's, it's like at Stanford, for example, I think there's more administrators than there are students. Right. 
Okay. <laughs> Something like that, right? In medicine, of course, there's tons of administrators. Yeah. Law, of course, right? If you can automate these in a, quote, compliant way, and you would need, that's the thing, is you need a gigantic pool of people and laws and so on that's strong enough. You couldn't do it in... Switzerland, mm -hmm. right? What would happen is the copyright industry would just go and lean on Switzerland too hard. Right. It'd be like Napster, yeah, 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 yeah. right? And so on. So you need something. Uh, I mean, that's actually why, you know, Spotify, right? Mm -hmm. You know why they actually started in Europe? No. Because all the U.S. companies uh, that tried couldn't get licensed until Spotify being oh. fully Swedish and genuinely Swedish. It wasn't like yeah, an American yeah, yeah, went overseas, yeah, yeah. right? They had enough leverage Right, because like Sweden, I think also had like the pirate party and stuff. I may be misremembering some of this, right? But they had enough like local leverage as being like purely Swedish right. that the the RIA and so on just couldn't shut them down. So there was a negotiation that right. happened there. Whereas let's say Groove Shark was just shut down in the U.S., right? So it feels like th this is kind of the right kind of thing. Anyway, I know I'm digressing, but yeah, feels yeah. like an interesting concept. Go oh ahead. yeah, no, uh, yeah, 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 no doubt about it. Yeah. So AI, maybe AI Indian or, or yeah. A Indian. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, those are some thoughts. Uh, I, I leave you the floor. I mean, we've gone through tons of stuff. We went through yeah. the rise of India, the return of India, really, to the world stage, the rise of Flipkart, and how you went from just like basically bootstrapping the thing with $4,000 in India from a time when less than 5% of Indians were online to one of the largest exits, perhaps the largest exit in the world at that point, certainly the largest exit in Indian history, to helping mainstream this thing within India. Uh, and and now helping entrepreneurs, you know, with X to 10X. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to know, just give me give me what the last, uh, you have the last words. Go yeah. ahead, Benny. What, what else would you say? No, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, if I look back, I mean, I've seen sort of uh, the journey of India's transformation, so as to speak, right, uh, uh, through, my, through my life. And I guess I was lucky to be born in 1982 and, and just when India was sort of liberalizing, I was a teenager, and then uh, I started working when uh, the digital age was sort of happening upon us. Uh, and I think today India's, I, th I think I can see that uh, uh, India's sort of sitting on a big uh, potential opportunity and a pivotal sort of moment in history. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think my focus is uh, to continue to sort of, I think, uh, drive forward the entrepreneurial ecosystem uh, as much as I can. And then I'm very bullish about this, I think, building this whole new talent ecosystem as well, uh, how to uh, convert this potential energy into kinetic energy, so, <laughs> so as to speak, at scale. That's awesome. Yeah, so I think those uh, are probably the two big uh, uh, opportunities or thoughts. Uh, I'm well, looking at it. I'm uh, looking forward to actually working with you on some of the stuff. Investing Same with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, with that, we thank you. Thank this you. Is, this is the Network State Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Oh, great.